Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. We're about to get some advice from someone who has 16 years of experience in the White House, both about how to land a job in the US executive branch and how to get a lot more done uh, once you're actually in there. If you're a US citizen and you're interested in moving to DC to work on AI policy issues, uh, then we would potentially love to chat with you. In the show notes, we'll stick in a link uh, where you can apply for free careers advising from 80,000 Hours. And we're especially keen to meet people with uh, backgrounds in law, uh, policy, or computer science. So if that sounds like you, uh, do let us know about it. All right, here's Tom Khalil. Today, I'm speaking with Tom Khalil. Tom studied political science and international economics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and worked on the Democratic presidential campaigns in 1988 and 1992 before serving in the White House under Obama and Clinton, helping to design and launch national science and technology initiatives. From 2009 to 2017, that involved working at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, first as Deputy Director for Policy and then as Deputy Director for Technology and Innovation. He's now Chief Innovation Officer at Schmidt Futures, a foundation which, among other things, works to improve US science policy and identify and pursue 21st century moonshots. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Tom. Happy to be here. Uh, so I hope uh, over this interview to hear your kind of thoughts of long-termism in government and uh, draw out a whole bunch of your advice on how people can best pursue policy careers in, in the US and potentially in other countries as well. Uh, but first, uh, what are you doing uh, now and uh, why do you think it's really important work? Well, as you noted, I'm serving as the Chief Innovation Officer for Schmidt Futures, which is a philanthropic organization founded by Eric and Wendy Schmidt. And I believe in general, philanthropy has a big opportunity to make investments in things that both the public and private sector are underinvesting in. Uh, what kind of investments are those? So one of the things I'm interested in is that the federal government is serious about using science and technology to solve certain types of problems in areas like national security, energy, space, health, and basic science. But there are a lot of other areas where the relevant mission agency has little or no capacity to invest in science and technology. And those create systemic gaps in the country's research and innovation portfolio. And so that's an example of an area where a philanthropist or foundation has more flexibility to address some of those gaps. Okay, so we're not going to focus too much on your, on your current foundation work in this interview, because I'm especially interested to hear about your many years of, of work in government. Um, so I guess to help uh, get, give people a sense of how they could potentially uh, build their own career in uh, policy and government, let's just uh, briskly walk through, through your own career. Uh, sure. Um, yeah, what was the path you've taken to kind of progressively having more, more impact or, or influence in the, in, in the policy world from, I guess, uh, your, your student days to, to now? Yeah, so my career has been a first or second order consequence of my decision to volunteer on the 1988 Dukakis for President campaign. Uh, so I did that in the summer of uh, 1987, and I volunteered for a part of the uh, campaign called the Issues Department. And that is like a boot camp for would-be policy wonks, uh, because you have to learn how to get up to speed quickly on a new issue how to create a network of outside advisors. You learn this work ethic of uh, staying up until it's done because you can't ask a presidential candidate for an extension. You learn how to look for new uh, policy ideas that your candidate can get behind, how to prepare them for presidential debates, how to understand what issues they're likely to get asked about as they travel around the country. So you certainly don't become an expert in one particular area, uh, but you learn how to become a generalist 
read lots of things, talk to lots of smart people, and then, and then try to figure out what does the candidate really need to know about this issue uh, to be informed and knowledgeable. So presumably that couldn't have been the complete beginning because you can't just walk off the street and get a, get a job, de- <laughs> job developing policy for a presidential candidate. So, so how did you actually get in your, foot, your foot in the door to, to take that kind of position? Uh, it, it was really volunteering early. So I was volunteering in, in the summer of 1987 when there were lots of different presidential candidates. Uh, so there wasn't the same level of competition that there might be. And then the other thing that I was lucky is that uh, the issue that I knew something about, uh, namely international trade, was an area of disagreement uh, between the, the candidates. So the fact that I knew something about international trade made them more interested in bringing me on as a volunteer. How much do you think it ended up boosting your career that Dukakis actually became the nominee? Oh, uh, that was important. And what was even more important is that a number of the people that I worked for also wound up working for Bill Clinton. So in 92, very close to the general election, so in the fall of 92, uh, some of the people I'd worked with in 88 contacted me and said, hey, do you want to come down to uh, Little Rock and write some of Bill Clinton's position papers? And so, as you may remember, Bill Clinton won. And the uh, first thing that happened was that uh, Bill Clinton had said uh, during the 92 campaign, it's the economy, stupid. And he said, in the same way that we have a National Security Council that that, uh, will ensure that the president is focused on foreign policy and national security and defense issues every single day, we need to focus like a laser beam on the economy. So we should have a National Economic Council. And so uh, Bill Clinton asked Bob Rubin to be the first head of his National Economic Council. Uh, Bob Rubin had never worked in government before. um, So he asked some of the campaign people, who should I hire? Uh, And they said, oh, you have to hire Tom Khalil. (laughs) And so uh, Bob was initially highly skeptical. Fortunately, I did not know that at the time. I, I thought this was more or less a pro forma interview. So I was very relaxed. So I visited him in New York, and he asked me why I wanted to work for the National Economic Council, what types of things would I work on. And, you know, fortunately, I knew a lot more about technology policy than he did since he was, uh, you know, an investment banker. Uh, so I came off as, as appearing very knowledgeable. Uh, so he said, you are as advertised and offered me the job. So that, that's how I wound up uh, working in the White House in my late 20s. So is this a, a path that you think uh, listeners could potentially take to, to get in, on board with a like a presidential campaign early in its run when it's a bit less competitive to get involved and someone who is in their like mid-20s can potentially like get a policy position? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I think that it's a career move that has a lot of variance. So I don't think you should do it if you say, well, I want to be guaranteed that uh, my candidate will win my party's nomination win the general, and then I will get a great job. Yeah. So I, I think you need to be prepared for an outcome in which none of those things happen and still be okay with doing doing it. So I think that there are a number of instances during my career uh, where I've just been lucky and things could have easily worked out another way and I would not have had the opportunity to, to work for two presidents for 16 years. Did you feel kind of uh, out of your depth a bit when you first got involved in the campaign? Didn't you? No, I, d- I don't think so. I mean, I certainly, I felt a little bit more out of my depth 
Maybe I was too young and brash to recognize it uh, when I was actually doing it. But having the first time I worked in the government be working for the White House uh, is is a little unusual. So there was a there was a fair amount of learning on the job that, that I wound up doing. How did you choose Dukakis? And I guess uh, what, what you don't, if you don't want to choose a specific candidate, kind of what what guidelines could we use to figure out who, what what campaign they might want to get involved with? I chose Dukakis primarily because. Uh, I was in the Boston area at the time, and that's where his campaign was located. <laughs> uh, so it wasn't based on a review of all of the candidates and, the, and then saying, you know, which, which particular candidate is closest to my policy preferences. Should people investigate the candidates a lot and think, oh, this is one that I agree with ideologically? Or should they think, well, maybe look at like how likely they think they are to win or like how, you know, how likely they are to win well, in general? I, so I wouldn't, so it depends, right? So I think that in a lot of cases... There are actually uh, not huge differences between candidates of a given uh, political party, and a lot of it is about uh, how likely they are to win, or what's their personal story, what are their strengths and weaknesses as a candidate. So, for example, Mike Dukakis was very thoughtful. You know, he had a number of weaknesses as a as a uh, political candidate. Okay, so uh, moving on. Uh, what what were you working on during the Clinton administration? Yeah, so I worked for part of the White House called the National Economic Council, which was this new organization whose responsibility was to coordinate domestic and international economic policy. And I handled the technology portfolio. So the entire staff might fluctuate between 20 and 30 people. And, you know, everyone would have a fairly broad portfolio. So when I started, I spent a lot of time working on issues related to information and communications technologies. And that was because Vice President Gore was particularly interested in what was then known as the uh, information superhighway, uh, but today we just call the internet. (laughs) Uh, Because back in 1993, the Vice President had this vision of, you know, this global network of networks that was going to connect computers and all these other devices. And exactly how it was going to evolve was not entirely clear. Uh, so I did a lot of work on on those issues. Uh, and then uh, also towards the end of the administration, I worked on something called the National Nanotechnology Initiative. Yeah. So imagine once you're actually in the White House, things are so busy, there's so much going on that it's maybe hard to find time to think and to figure out like what you actually believe and what the, what the priority should be. How do you, how do you choose areas to, to, to focus on? Uh, do, you just have, do you just have advisors? Does everyone kind of have advisors going, you know, going down and down and down? Uh, people who actually have time to read original research and figure out what, what the most promising technologies are? You've always got a situation in which you can have both formal and informal advisors. Uh, so for example, within the White House, There's an organization called the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology. There's an organization called the National Academy of of, uh, Sciences. It has a different name now, uh, but they're continually producing reports. So what you have is, uh, first of all, some things that you have to deal with. So, for example, if a crisis like Ebola occurs, you don't have the option of saying, well, This year, I'd prefer not to work on Ebola. Uh, So when a crisis like that occurs, you have to work on it. So that's one source of the agenda. Second is that presidents campaigned on things, Mm. and they know that they're going to be held accountable 
by the press and potentially the voters of you said you were going to do X, Y, and Z, what sort of progress have you made? Uh, so there's always this promises made, promises kept exercise. There might be uh, people who are bringing issues to your attention. Uh, so I'll give you a canonical example of this. Congress passed a law that said that if the executive branch wanted to change the definition of what constituted a supercomputer for purposes of export control laws, then the president had to make a determination that this was a sound policy. And when Congress passed this law, they set it at a particular level in terms of the speed and power and performance of the computer. So the problem was is that what is a supercomputer one day yeah. is, a, is, laptop the, the is a laptop. And so, you know, Apple would come to us and said, hey, this is going to be classified as a supercomputer. Do you think that makes sense? And we would say no. <laughs> and so there would be things like that that people would bring to our attention yeah. of saying, hey, there's, you know, public policy is about to have this deleterious impact on U.S. exports uh, without any corresponding national security benefit. Uh, don't you think that you should change that policy? So you're right in the sense that a lot of times you kind of have the intellectual capital that you walk in the door with uh, and the amount of time that you have for reflection uh, and uh, uh, as the EA community would put it, cause prioritization uh, is, is limited because you are constantly dealing with, with fires. Now, I was a little fortunate in the sense that science, technology, and innovation are by their very nature longer term issues. So I worked on uh, President Clinton's Caltech speech in which he announced the National Nanotechnology Initiative and he talked about some of the goals of the effort. And he said explicitly in that speech, we may not reach some of these goals for 20 years, but that's why there's an important role for the federal government, because it's very difficult for companies to justify making investments that may not pay off for, for 20 years. So, you know, relative to someone else in another policy uh, council, like the National Security Council, that might be dealing with what's happening in Bosnia that day, yeah. uh, I had the luxury of occasionally taking some time to say, what should I be working on next? So uh, after, after Clinton left, you went to UC Berkeley during the Bush administration, right? Yes, that's right. So this is a common uh, cycle, I guess. It's like your side of politics is in, is in power, so you're in DC. And then uh, when, when the other side is in power, people go and do other things and like build their careers outside of government and then come back. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think that even if the party that you are affiliated with controls the White House, it's not like people are going to stay there from the first day to the last day. So what I did was somewhat unusual. Uh, so people, uh, you know, uh, people burned out or decide they want to do something else. So it's it's not unusual for people to move in and out of government. So what were you doing at, at UC Berkeley? My job was to help the campus develop new multidisciplinary research initiatives that cut across different departments and colleges. So integrating biology, the physical sciences, engineering, computer science, the social and behavioral sciences. And one of the things that I worked on that might be of most interest to the EA community was uh, a program called uh, Big Ideas at Berkeley. And the premise of the program was a lot of times students have ideas of their own and they just need small amounts of funding, a deadline, permission, and tips about how to have influence without authority in order to help make their ideas happen. So what I found to be very effective uh, was 
issuing a very broad call for ideas and seeing what students would come up with, what they were intrinsically motivated to work on. And then, as I said, to give them funding uh, connections to people on and off campus and uh, tips about how to be effective in the world. Yeah, so uh, Influence Without Authority is one of these uh, ideas that you're constantly returning to talking about. Do you want, do you want to explain that one? Sure, yeah. So uh, part of this stemmed from the roles that I would have in the White House, uh, which is that I would have a desk and a phone and a computer and a business card that said the White House on it. But it wasn't like, particularly when I was working for uh, President Clinton, it wasn't like there were a bunch of people reporting to me. So in order to be effective, uh, not only would I have to come up with an idea, but I would need to figure out how to build a coalition around that idea, even though the people who I ultimately had to convince to say yes, uh, in no way reported to me. So the ability to do that, uh, to build coalitions around ideas that you're excited about, uh, is very important in a policy role when it's not like you have dedicated funding that you have direct responsibility for and a large staff that is reporting to you that you have this command and control relationship with. Yeah, is, is having influence but not authority mostly just a disadvantage because you can't tell people what to do? Or does it have advantages as well because maybe people are more, more open with you and less defensive? I think the advantage is that the number of things I was able to work on uh, was much higher. So if, for, for example, if I'd been someone who had a responsibility for a particular issue and had a budget and a staff, uh, then people would look at me strangely if I said, well, actually, I have an opinion about what you're working on as well. And so I think what I found intellectually engaging about the roles that I had is that uh, I had a fairly broad remit. So the name of my division was Technology and Innovation. And we used to joke, if it's not technology, it's innovation. <laughs> uh, I guess another possible benefit is if uh, you have lots of people reporting to you, then your, your whole time is taken up managing people and like dealing with programs that are already running, whereas you can like think, like, think about new things and call yeah. people up and just explore. Ab- absolutely, yeah. Okay, so yeah, ultimately you ended up at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy uh, for the full eight years from, I guess, 2009 to 2016. Yes. Uh, yeah, what, what were your key responsibilities then? When I started, I thought that my primary role would be uh, advising the person that uh, President Obama had designated as his science advisor. So this was Dr. John Holdren. And uh, I had known uh, John because he was uh, one of Clinton's external science advisors, but he'd never worked in the government before. And so I was playing a role in the transition period. So this is the period after the election has been held and before the inauguration has occurred. And so the Obama campaign called me up and said, would you run the transition team for the Office of Science and Technology Policy? So my job was to help whoever Obama was going to appoint to be a science advisor, get ready to do that job. So what are the issues that they're going to have to deal with in the first 100 days? What are the commitments that Obama made during the campaign that they're going to have a role in implementing? That type of thing. So when when Obama appointed uh, Holdren to be his science advisor, uh, Dr. Holdren asked me, would I be willing to stay on as his deputy? And I thought that my primary role would be uh, because... This was 
uh, John's first time working in, in government as, as opposed to merely advising government, uh, that I would be able to give him some institutional knowledge about how to get things done. So that's how I sort of in, initially conceived of my job. And then uh, I asked John if I could start recruiting people uh, to work on various projects that I thought were interesting. So for example, during the Bush administration, I'd served as the chair for the Global Health Working Group for the Clinton Global Initiative and so gotten really interested in, in global health issues because of the high benefit to cost ratio of a number of global health interventions. And so I started recruiting people uh, to work on things that I thought were important and then discovered that I really liked that uh, because I had the opportunity to recruit people in their 20s and 30s and just be able to work on a number of things in parallel. Uh, and then also I enjoyed uh, mentoring and, and coaching uh, the next generation. I discovered that as well. So then I really started building a team both to identify issues that I thought were important and then to try to find out someone who could work on those issues full time or occasionally just finding someone who I thought was really talented and giving them the opportunity to engage in public service. Okay, so maybe let, let, let's dwell on this on this time for a little bit. So it, I imagine that after someone gets elected, uh, mm -hmm. they've got, I guess, 75 days or something until they actually take office. So there's going to be this like very manic period when they're trying to like staff up. Like yes. Quite a large executive operation. Yes. And I guess you were brought in like soon after the election, I suppose, to like yes. help to figure out what it, what are we going to do with the OSTP and this new yes. administration. Yes. I imagine that's a time when it's like if you can talk to the right people, you can, there's a potentially like good chance of getting a job or a very unusually good chance of like actually finding a role because so this might be a scramble, I guess, of people who are qualified to take positions that you're thinking, oh, well, we want to like think of, we want to talk about now in technology. We want to like have someone to do that. And then yeah. you're like, you got to very quickly find someone to do it. Yes. Um, yeah. Do you have any, have any comments on, I, I imagine people are like probably trying to figure out how they're going to staff like the next administration in 2021 already because you have to just pre-prepare so much. Yeah, there's actually not a very structured way of doing that. So it, it tends to happen in earnest when the two parties have their nominees mm. uh, and then they can start working on their transition. So transition is usually, you know, sequencing and prioritization. So what's the order in which you want to try to get things done and then staffing the administration. And so what you want to do is not only begin to identify candidates, but then you have to start vetting them yeah. because particularly if they're going to go through the process of Senate confirmation, mm -hmm. uh, there are all these reasons why people can fail yeah. <laughs> to make it through that. So you've got to have these sort of, you know, very difficult conversations with people to say, if we put you through that process, uh, is there anything that's going to come out about you that's going to embarrass you and the president-elect? So is there a bit of a phenomenon where if you've already served in a previous administration, then you're viewed as like safe because you've already... like If you've gone through that, yeah, if you've gone through the FBI background check or you've gone through... Senate confirmation is not necessary for all positions. So it's, it's, it's necessary for a subset of those positions, particularly those that are presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed. But yeah, so that's that's a difficult uh, process. Uh, and then, you know, what happens is that the administration will usually start with the most senior positions. So for example, you need to have a secretary of defense right away. You yeah. can't say, oh, well, well, you know, like six months from now. <laughs> uh, and it's even to the point where in some cases, they might ask someone from a previous administration to stay. Uh, so for example, uh, the Trump administration asked our deputy secretary of defense 
who was seen as not particularly political. He was a former colonel, uh, Colonel Bob Wark, to stay on until they'd managed to get to identify and get confirmed their deputy secretary of defense. Yeah. So uh, do you have any advice for listeners who you know, might be at a point in a career that where they could imagine working in the next White House? Like what kind of things that they can do now to bring themselves to the attention of the, of the right people so they're in a good position come November 2020? Obviously, it depends on what point in their career they are. So if, the, if they're sort of at the beginning of their career, then the question is, is there someone that can serve as an advocate for them? So for example, if they've served as a research assistant for a professor who is advising people in government or has moved in and out of government before, they might say, oh, you know, once we know who is filling this particular position, they're going to be looking for a young, energetic special assistant. Uh, and that's a role that you could play. So, you know, politics, uh, all careers are this mix of know-how and know-who. I think that a lot of the reasons that you tend uh, to pick people that you've worked with in the past or people that you know vouch for is that there are a bunch of things about these roles uh, that may be difficult to observe from the outside just by looking at your resume. So is this the type of person who has a very strong work ethic? You know, we used to call this the, like, stay up until it's done. Like you can't ask the president of the United States for an extension. The ability to produce a lot of work in a short period of time, because you might be in this uh, situation where, you know, something has to be done by the end of the day. The ability to function without a lot of babysitting. So your boss tells you generally the problem that needs to be solved and you go figure out how to solve it. You're not constantly coming back and saying, well, what about this? (laughs) Right? having a lot of common sense, being someone that people like to work with. Uh, So if you have this aversive personality uh, and no one likes to work with you, that's going to be a disaster in in a political environment, whereas that might be less problematic if you're an individual contributor as a software engineer. So these are characteristics and qualities of someone that you're more likely to know if you've worked with them as opposed to looking at their resume uh, and so I think that there is this high level of reliance on recruiting people that you've worked with or people whose opinion you really trust have, have worked closely with, because it's sort of like being in the foxhole with someone. Okay, well, we'll come back to the, to the career advice and kind of the, you know, what, what would make you a good fit uh, later on. Um, but what's a, what's a big win that you've had uh, at, at some point over your career? What, what kind of things can people accomplish? Yeah, so I'll give you a couple of examples. So one was when I worked for President Obama, I was able to recruit at any one time uh, 20 people. uh, And each of those people uh, were working on a handful of things that were consequential. Uh, So that wound up uh, being pretty significant. So let let me give you one example. So a young woman uh, emailed me and the uh, subject line of her email was, Cass Sunstein says I should work for you. (laughs) That's that's a strong subject line. (laughs) Good subject line. And so uh, I did a little research on her, and it turned out that uh, she had been a child violin prodigy with Itzhak Perlman, had uh, won the major Yale undergraduate awards, uh, was a Rhodes Scholar, and was wrapping up a postdoc at Stanford in decision neuroscience. So I went out (laughs) on a limb, and I decided to take a chance on her. And her name was Maya Shankar, 
and I asked Maya, what do you want to do? And she said, the UK has uh, created this organization called the Behavioral Insights Team, which is taking these insights from people like Kahneman and Tversky and Sunstein and Thaler and using them to inform policies and programs. And why doesn't, you know, these are all US researchers. What, why don't we have something like this? She said, I would like to create that. And so sure enough, in her late 20s, she arrived uh, with no money, created this new organization called the Social and Behavioral Sciences Team, recruited 20 behavioral scientists to the federal government, got them to launch 60 collaborations with federal departments and agencies, uh, and got President Obama to sign an executive order institutionalizing this new entity. So, you know, I think that's pretty consequential for someone in their late 20s uh, to be able to accomplish. So that's one thing I did was to recruit people of that caliber and teach them how to get things done in, in the federal government because the government doesn't come with an operating manual. I also launched uh, several several dozen research initiatives. So one you mentioned was the National Nanotechnology Initiative. Um, so that's resulted in a $23 billion investment in nanoscale science and engineering. And that has survived the transition from Clinton to Bush to Obama to the current administration. Uh, in the Obama administration, I worked on something called the Brain Initiative, where the goal was to do for uh, neuroscience what the Genome Project had done for genetics. I was able to get DARPA uh, Prize Authority, which they used for the self-driving car competition. And the second time they ran that uh, a team won. Uh, Larry Page was at the finish line. He promptly acquired the winning team. Uh, and so that's where the Google X division came from, was from that work on the self-driving car. And it's also where Waymo came from. And then when I came back into government, uh, I was able to get all agencies the authority to do incentive prizes for up to $50 million. And if you go to challenge.gov, you'll see over 800 instances in which agencies have used this authority. So those are a couple of examples of the things that I've done. But the thing that I'm most proud of is the team that I built, not only because of the impact that they had while they were there, but because I think many of them are going to return and engage in public service in the future. And they learned some things about how to go from an idea to things happening in the world. So one of the biggest impacts was like fostering young people to go off and have a great impact with their careers. A little bit like 80,000 hours. I yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Get a lot of leverage potentially from that. Yeah. Are, are there any kind of uh, products or like or businesses that you can point to that came out of, say, the brain initiative or, or the nanotechnology work? Like think products that have actually like, you know, reached oh, fruition sure. and like, yeah, had, yeah. Had, had an impact? Yeah. So the advances in Moore's law, the ability to double the number of transistors on an integrated circuit increasingly rely uh, on advances in, in nanoscale science and engineering. It's having a big impact in, in areas like energy, particularly around uh, energy storage, which is one of the big challenges that we need to address. So I have, a, uh, I have a story about the National Nanotechnology Initiative. So in the late 90s, I started interacting with scientists and engineers and said, well, if we decided to make this an area of focus, what are some of the things that might occur if we did that? And they said things that were totally incomprehensible. Uh, so they would say things like, well, we might be able to, de to develop functionalized nanoengineered MRI contrast agents. 
we might be able to develop a material with a Young's modulus of this many gigapascals, <laughs> and we You're might be able to develop to understand. Uh, uh, molecular electronics with a storage density of 10 to the 15 bits per cubic centimeter. And so what I did was I turned that into English, yeah. which was we will be able to detect cancerous tumors before they're visible to the human eye, store the equ equivalent of the Library of Congress in a device the size of a sugar cube, uh, and make materials that are stronger than steel in a fraction of the weight. And armed with those examples, I was able to convince everyone, including ultimately the president, that we should make it bet uh, in, in this area. So, you know, for those people who are interested in science and technology but don't have a deeply technical background, uh, one role that I've been able to play is just serving as an impedance match between the policy world and, and the scientific and technical world because they're generally not trained about how to communicate the importance of what they're doing to a broader audience. Yeah, okay, so I'll bring together two questions I was gonna ask you. One is, is, is it just generally the case that science and tech people kind of struggle to communicate with, with, with policymakers because they're just thinking in a different way? And, and I guess, did, did you ever regret kind of not having a more technical or scientific background yourself, having studied, I guess, yeah, economics and, and uh, political economy? I have found the things that, that there is like a genuine value added that I can provide. Uh, now, the reason I'm able to do that is because I have a network of people who are deeply technical. Mm -hmm. So anytime I have a question like, is this a good idea or is this a crazy idea? Mm -hmm. uh, I have a network of people that, that I can talk to. But that there is a role that I can play, which is if I can understand it, then I'm generally capable of communicating it to someone who hasn't spent, I've you know spent a good chunk of my career interacting with scientists and engineers. And, you know, most policymakers are not doing that. So uh, a, a sort of value add that I can provide is the ability to talk to scientists and engineers, get the gist of what it is that they're talking about, and then communicate that to a much broader policy audience. And then the other thing is that that there is a virtuous circle that kicks in with, with doing this. So I'll give you an example of this. So in 1993... I was one of maybe like a handful of people in the White House that was interacting with the computer networking research community. So I was interacting with DARPA. DARPA had a very fast connection uh, to the internet that was say, you know, 100 to 200 times faster than a dial-up modem. So I saw what Mosaic, which was the, the predecessor to Netscape, looked like when you had a 45 megabit per second connection. Mm -hmm. So it was immediately obvious to, to me that the ability to create this global information space that anyone could contribute to with all these hyperlinks and like that anyone could use mm -hmm. was going to be a big deal. And so the reason is that we were allowing the research community to live in the future. So you could like, it was like going in a time machine and seeing what the world was going to be like you know, 10 years later, right? Yeah. Uh, and then I could do the information arbitrage of going around and showing everyone in the White House what this was going to be like mm -hmm. and why it was important. And so for most people, the first time they heard about the internet was from me. And so because in like 1993, yeah, it was yeah, yeah. like... Not just, really on people's radar. Yeah, it was yeah. not people on, on people's radar screen. It was like, you know, unless you were a computer scientist or something like that, it's probably not something that you were familiar with. So after that, when I said nanoscale science and engineering is going to be important, P 
people are like, well, he was right about that internet thing. <laughs> so maybe he's right about yeah. this as well. I, I think it feels to me like a grant makers, and I guess like well, anyone, including me, whenever you hear about like a new um, you know, thing that you could fund in science and technology or something you can go and work on, there's always a question like, is this bullshit? Or is this like yeah. something that could happen? And I guess, how do you know who to trust? Because kind of, even if someone's like trying to be a very honest like a scientist, sure. then it's like they're, they're so invested in their own thing that it's very hard to know whether they're hyping it like beyond what's technically practical. I think that the important thing to do is to be taught to uh, talk to more than one person, <laughs> right? So, so for example, in uh, late 2011 and 2012, when people uh, brought me the idea that ultimately became the Brain Initiative, my initial reaction wasn't like, great, let's announce this to, like tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. It was to do due diligence on the idea by asking lots of other people, is it the right time to work on this, right? Has tech, have various technologies from, you know, new materials to new types of imaging technologies advanced to the point where this is actually doable? Or is this like radically premature? Or, and if we were successful, how big a deal would this be? Is this like a, you know, a single or a home run? And then you also, a lot of times, like smart people disagree and, and you tr have to try to figure out what's driving that uh, disagreement. And then if you're the government, you know, sometimes you might take a portfolio approach, right? Yeah. So if there's a goal that you think is really important, uh, as an individual researcher, you may care intensely about which path is the right way to do that because you have to stake your career on that. But as a policymaker, you can be like, you Give know- everyone let, a little bit of money. Yeah, let's support both and yeah. like see which one works out. So, so you're like moderately technical, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, and, you, and you've spoken to a lot of scientists yeah. and, and you're like trying to like figure out uh, like whether something's worth investing in. You speak to different experts and they like maybe disagree. There's a bit of controversy here. Yeah. Like how, do you, how do you do you approach it? At that point, you're just like, well, maybe we like, we'll, we'll fund a bunch of different things. We'll take a portfolio approach. Or have you found any uh, kind of like rules of thumb for figuring out who to trust more? I think part of it is looking at someone's track record. So there are some people who they've just like consistently delivered, number one. Uh, and number two, they do not have a track record of overhyping their work. So if they say, I think that over the, the next five to 10 years, it will be possible to do X, you just uh, attach more of a weight to a statement like that than someone who has a track record of overhyping and underdelivering. delivering uh, So def definitely someone's track record. And then the other is just you know, ensuring that you're talking to lots of people and not just one, you know, charismatic individual who may have an incentive to uh, overmarket, uh, overhype uh, their future research directions. The other thing is also what's the level at which you're making the, a bet. So, for example, the idea of the the National Nanotechnology Initiative, the, the bet that we were making was that at the nanoscale, new and potentially useful properties. Uh, emerge. So it's like adding another dimension to the periodic table of elements. We, we did not say that carbon nanotubes is going to be the answer or buckyballs. We should put all our money in buckyballs. It was just there's this new class of materials. They have new and potentially useful properties. If we can make nanoscale materials, devices, and structures, that's, that's going to have a broad range of applications. So similarly with the Brain Initiative, uh, we didn't say, you know, this is the way in which we're going to figure out how the brain encodes and processes and information. We were making the following bet informed by the research community, which is 
that if you look at the scientific revolution, what triggered it? It was advances in things like telescopes and microscopes that allowed us to see new things that we didn't see before and allowed people to say, hey, you know, Ptolemy and Aristotle, they got some things wrong. That that's so really if you look at say what's the driver of the scientific revolution, it's uh, the ability to to see things that we couldn't see before. Similarly, the view in the research community was that neuroscience was tool limited. We can measure a very small number of neurons with high levels of, of temporal and spatial resolution, or we can take a fuzzy picture of your entire brain using something like fMRI, but we can't do anything in the middle. And so the hypothesis was we could develop a set of tools that would allow us to ask and answer new questions about how the brain encodes and processes information. So part of it is also, what's something that's big enough to matter, but it's not so focused on a particular pathway that it's the equivalent of going to Vegas and saying, I'm going to bet all of my money on 12. Yeah. And then if 12 doesn't come up, then I've lost all the money. Uh, are there any things that you've like hoped to fund where you think, oh, like in retrospect, you think, oh, damn, I should have realized that that was not going to work? Or was that, was that not how things function? There were definitely things like that. So for example, one, one of the things I learned is that if the United States is behind in a technology, it's very difficult to try to reestablish a leadership position. Interesting. Yeah. So we, just we, tr- look at something else. we tried to do that in the area of uh, technologies like flat panel displays. And we invested some money, uh, but I don't think a whole lot came out of it. So is there like once there's one one city or one region that has like real really big agglomeration effects? What, from like what, you know, once out. Korea and Japan, uh, you know, dominated the market for things like active matrix liquid crystal displays, yeah. then trying to get the United States back into that market uh, is really really hard, and and might require you know more money than we're willing than the U.S. is willing to put into it, because yeah. obviously. You know, we believe that the primary role of government is to create the right environment for the private sector. It's not to engage in the sort of heavy-handed, top-down industrial policy that you see a China engaging in, for example. So I guess then you think, well, instead we should look at what's the next thing going to be where we can like potentially jump ahead. So, for example, we invested in this idea of flexible electronics, where the idea is maybe you have a display that's like a piece of paper that you can roll up and put in your pocket. And if that's an area where no one has established a clear leadership position that's more likely to be effective than saying okay we're gonna like duke it out in some market that we've kind of already lost uh, you've already alluded to the fact that like the administrations change every four or six years well i guess every occasionally it's 12 and so you, you have to be thinking well what can we do to potentially keep this policy around to, to sustain it over sure. the long term yeah what, what things do you do to make sure that kind of projects that you make are, are built to last and how often do, do you succeed at that First question is you have to be sure that this is something that you really think needs to be sustained over a long term. So, for example, there might be some policies where you're like, hey, there's a really important role for the government for the first five to 10 years, but that doesn't mean that the government needs to be involved indefinitely. Uh, The technology might get to the point where it's really time for the private sector to pick it up and run with it in the same way that the government began investing in the Internet in 1969 and eventually at some point... Uh, the private sector, you know, beginning in the 1990s, there was an explicit policy by the government of, hey, it's time for the private sector to commercialize this and offer it as a commercial product or service. And now we're going to think about what's after the internet. 
Uh, so we started at that, at that point investing in something called the next generation internet, which was an internet that was a thousand times faster than what was available uh, for through commercial products and services. But to your question, the thought experiment that you engage in is all of the people who are affiliated with the current administration walk out the door. And then what happens the day after? So that's the thought experiment that you have to do. And so one of the things that you can do is you can ensure that there is a group of civil servants who genuinely thinks this is a good idea and will continue to work on this unless they're explicitly told by the incoming administration to stop. So, uh, for example, there have been a number of areas in environment and climate policy where the uh, current administration has instructed the departments and agencies like EPA, I, I want you to reverse the administration's, uh, the Obama administration's policy on this, right? But there are other areas like nanoscale science and engineering where in the absence of a direct instruction uh, that all the agencies that are involved in this will continue to work on it because they think it's the right thing to do. So civil service buy-in, I think is really important. And it's also very useful if Congress passes a law. So there were some policies that we worked on which they were done through regulation as opposed to through law. And one of the things that makes those more fragile is if they can be done through regulation, they can also be reversed through regulation. Yeah. Legislation is much harder to change. Legislation is is much harder to change. So, for example, as I said, I was able to get a DARPA prize authority working for President Clinton and then every agency prize authority. And agencies have continued to use this authority, whereas if it had just been done through executive order and incoming administration said, well, we don't like prizes, then they could just repeal uh, the executive order. And that's a lot easier than changing the law. Yeah. Well, uh, looking at the big picture of kind of US science and technology or innovation policy, uh, what things uh, could be changed that would allow uh, us to get like significantly more R&D done or to, to increase GDP growth or increase scientific advancement? Yeah. So as I said earlier, one of the things I'm really interested in is what problems do we have where science and technology could make a difference. Uh, So right now, our de facto answer is that we can use science and technology to advance the frontiers of human knowledge about ourselves and the world around us, to help with national security and intelligence, uh, energy, uh, space, and health. And we have lots of other problems. Uh, And for those problems, for one reason or another, we have not made a decision as a country, oh, let's use science and technology to help solve that problem. So I think a really interesting thought experiment would be to take an agency that works on a really important problem, uh, say K-12 through education, and say, what if that agency had the capacity, the same capacity to mobilize the research community that DARPA did? Uh, number one, what goals would it set? Uh, and number two, what are examples of projects that it would support in order to achieve those goals. So right now, in K-12 education, productivity is negative. What I mean by that is we've doubled real per-pupil expenditures without any corresponding significant improvement in student learning outcomes. So I believe that if we had a research agency that had the sort of same capability to mobilize 
the scientific and technical community that, say, a DARPA has, that uh, there are things we could be doing to, to help address that problem. So an example is DARPA supported this project, and the goal was to reduce the time for a new Navy recruit to earn a technical skill and be able to do that in months rather than years. Uh, and that's developed some really uh, dramatic results in terms of training. And so you could imagine applying that approach to the training problem and to the education problem. Similarly, a big problem that we have in the United States is the intergenerational transmission of poverty. So, you know, we like to say that we have equality of opportunity, uh, but we know that there are, by the time kids show up at kindergarten, there are already large differences in school readiness, brain development, and vocabulary size. Mm -hmm. Uh, and our schools do not narrow those divides. So, you know, if you if you have low income parents, uh, you know the the odds of you struggling in school and struggling to make the transition from learning to read to reading to learn to graduating or you know going on to college. So, you know, even though we talk about equality of opportunity, there are large differences in people's life chances uh, based on you know, their parents or the, you know, what's going on at home. And my view is not science and technology will solve all those problems. My view is if you were going to come up with a list of things to try, science and technology would be one of the things on that list. So what I'm, the thing that I'm really interested in is when we think about science and technology, what, by which I don't just mean the natural sciences and engineering, I'm also talking about the social and behavioral sciences. What are the goals that we would like to use science and technology to help us achieve in the same way that we believe that we need science and technology to avoid technological surprise for the United States and to create it for our adversaries? Uh, you mentioned prizes before. Uh, well, I guess there's like different ways of trying to fund science. One is like grants where you try to sure. guess what's going to work and you've got like patents, I guess it's like a market-driven mechanism. Sure. And you've got uh, prizes, which I think you've kind of been championing as perhaps something that the, that the government should put more, more money into. Yes. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that I think is really perverse is that right now uh, the federal government routinely will make a financial commitment that is contingent on failure. <laughs> so what do I mean by that? That is, if you were to look at the, the finances of the United States government, you would find roughly $2.6 trillion in loan guarantees. So that is the government saying, if this individual or organization goes bankrupt, Uncle Sam is good for it. So that is a financial commitment that is contingent on failure. We are just barely scratching the surface on our ability to make financial commitments that are contingent on success. Mm. And, you know, why can this, let me give you some examples of how that, when we do do that, it can have a large impact. So there is a market failure associated with vaccines for diseases of the poor. Left to their own devices, drug companies won't work on vaccines for poor people because poor people have no money. So Michael Kramer... Uh, I think you interviewed uh, Michael's wife. Oh, yeah. yeah, uh, 80, hours. yeah, yeah. yeah. So Michael uh, and Rachel uh, wrote a book about this, but uh, they came up with this idea for addressing this market failure, which is called an advanced market commitment. So as a result of their work, five countries in the Gates Foundation went to GSK and Pfizer and said, if you develop a vaccine for this disease, which is safe and effective, then we commit that we will buy X million doses at $7 a dose. And that one intervention was enough to eliminate 
the 10 to 15 year gap that usually exists between when a vaccine is available in wealthy countries and when it's available in, in low income countries. So it's a financial commitment that is contingent on success. So it's the you know Gates Foundation and five countries saying, if you develop a vaccine, which is safe and effective, then we'll buy it. So the global health community has developed the capacity to do three things. Number one is identify a specific unmet need. The second is the ability to develop a performance-based specification for what a successful innovation would look like. In this case, a vaccine that works and is safe. And the third is if there's a market failure, if there's a huge gap between the social return and the private return, to create some incentive that motivates the private sector to solve this problem. So my view is we should be doing more of this, right? Why is it the case that we have $2.6 trillion in financial commitments that are contingent on failure when we barely have any financial commitments that are contingent on success? So that's my view. And these come in a variety of different flavors. There's incentive prizes. So that's like the Ansari X prize saying, if you develop a rocket that can go up 100 kilometers, carry the equivalent of three people, repeat that within a two-week period, and do that without any backing from the government, then we'll give you $10 million. So that's an incentive prize. The advanced market commitment or an advanced purchase commitment is if you develop X, then we will buy it. And then there are other approaches like milestone payments. So this is how the NASA collaboration with SpaceX worked. So when we retired the space, the space shuttle, the United States government had to start uh, spending a lot of money with the Russians in order to send astronauts to the International Space Station. So they developed a collaboration with private sector companies like SpaceX, and they said, we want a rocket that will go up to the space station, deliver and retrieve cargo, and ultimately astronauts. And we're going to define a set of milestone payments that's associated with getting there. And every time you meet one of them, we will send you a check. And so NASA got a capability for on the order of $400 million that would have cost them two to $4 billion using a business as usual approach. And that's what allowed Elon to finance the development of the Falcon 9 rocket. So that was a win-win between the government and the private sector. Yeah, I think Alex Tabarrok, the, the economist, has written a book, I think, uh, Creating the Innovation Renaissance, something like that. We'll stick up a link to it where he talks mm -hmm. about some of the pros and cons of prizes versus other funding mechanisms. Why hasn't it taken off more? I, I, one concern that I might have is that the government wouldn't know how much it should offer, like what's an appropriate price to offer, and so it could end up like you know accidentally giving away much more for something that's like too easy. And maybe the political economy of it is bad because you know, it gets taken over by businesses that are going to try to like milk this system of prizes. To, to get money for things that we're going to do anyway. Uh, like, yeah, what, what kind of concerns do you, do you think people have that mean that like prizes are just currently not a big uh, funding mechanism for, for research? Yeah, well, certainly they're not the appropriate way to support science in all instances. So it works if you have a clear goal. So if you can, if you know kind of the general direction that you want to go in, but you can't articulate a clear finish line, uh, then it makes a lot less sense to use a prize mechanism. So in many cases, a researcher will know the, the question that they're trying to answer, but they won't really know what success looks like. So that's one thing is that, is that it's only appropriate for certain classes of problems where there's a much clearer finish line. The, the ideal situation in the prize is you almost don't need judges, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about the Ansari X Prize, it was like, did the rocket go up 100 kilometers? <laughs> uh, did, 
was it carrying the equivalent of three people? Was it able to repeat that within a two-week period? Yeah. So, you know, you don't need a panel of experts to, to decide, well, did they actually do all those things? So that that's sort of like the ideal case as opposed to so something that's it's more, fuzzy. Uh, you know, subjective, Yeah. right? It's like, oh, you know, is Rob asking an interesting question, right? That that we rely <laughs> on, on peer review in order to be able to answer so it's a lot more work up front in, in order to do this as opposed to saying, well, I'm generally interested in, you know, ideas in this broad area as opposed to I can define uh, what success looks like. I guess, is it possible that uh, some research groups or businesses might find it hard to fund the money if the money only comes later rather than beforehand? Yeah. yeah, so that's why I'm interested in milestone payments because if someone had gone and said, okay, we want a rocket and once you've developed it, then we'll buy rides on the rocket. Then the, you know, particularly if it's a new entrant, the fact that the government is saying, well, I'll buy it once you make it might not allow them to be able to finance that. Are there any common themes of the ideas or the, or the policies you've pursued that have succeeded versus the ones that, that, that haven't panned out or that you know, failed later on? That's a good question. I don't know that there is a, there is a single theme that connects all of them. I think that in terms of the role that I've played, it is to bridge different worlds, right? So there's a, there's a policy world and there's a, there's a science, technology, innovation, entrepreneurship world. And by participating in both of those, I can help move ideas that are in one realm or, or community to another. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, that, that's something that I've done uh, over and over again. Or, you know, as in the, when I found out about how the global health community was thinking about solving its market failures, uh, I thought, you know, this has broader relevance. It's not just relevant to global health. It's relevant to lots of other areas where there's a market failure, and particularly when there are the innovation in question has high fixed costs and low marginal costs. So part of it is just you encounter particular situations and you discover that there's sort of this underlying pattern language of approaches to solving a particular problem that can be applied in some other policy domain. Seems like a, a common thread of the work that you've done and uh, and your writing is to focus on kind of these moonshots, these grand challenges. Like, what are the things that are going to really transform the world? Why why focus on that rather than more incremental improvements? And is, and do you think you yeah. know, is it, it's important to have people work on incremental improvements? You just Absolutely. want to focus on the big picture. Yeah. Yeah. No. 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 So I mean, if you said why has the world gotten better since eighteen twenty, it's like get things getting better at two percent per year. Yeah. Right. That has a huge impact over a long period of time. I think that part of it is that I think that setting these ambitious goals is important. And I also think that it helps get people excited about investing in, in science and technology. Now you can take that too far, right? So you can over-promise and, and, and under-deliver. So I do think that there are some risks if you do that in an irresponsible way. But I have found it a way to get people excited about investing in science and technology more broadly, or just focusing on particular problems. So the UK, uh, for example, has done this report on the long-term economic consequences of living in a post-penicillin world, uh, and it's $100 trillion, right? So I think people should be jumping up and down saying, hey, we should be doing more in this area. Yeah. Uh, so I do think that there are some areas where we're under-investing you know, relative to the importance of the problem. And, and, and so... I think that what you need to do is to go from the experience of policymakers is they don't have a shortage of problems. 
So just like showing up and saying, oh, and here are like five more things for you to worry about. That's not very effective, right? And so what you need to do is to say, here's the problem and here's what you could do about it, right? So what I find to be more effective is if I'm able to articulate both the problem and the solution because, you know, their experiences, they have a list of problems like as long as your arm and just like dumping another one of them. There's like, gee, thanks. Well, what the hell do you want me to do about that? You said that one of potentially the most valuable thing you, you were doing at the OSTP was recruiting the right people. Uh, yes. Was, was hiring. Uh, I suppose there's like feverish competition, obviously, over, over the best people. So kind of what could you do to get, get an edge in like either figuring out who the best people were, uh, where other people hadn't realized how talented they were, or in convincing them to work at the White House where otherwise they wanted to do something else? A lot of it was about me being able to be very specific and granular about what I had accomplished and what other similarly situated people had accomplished. So obviously I couldn't compete on the basis of salary or the quality of our cappuccino machine. Uh, It was, hey, you're going to be in the White House overseeing this federal government that uh, allocates $4 trillion a year. Uh, And there's no shortage of opportunities to make improvements relative to the status quo. And here are all the tools that you have. You can convince the president that this is an area that we should invest more money in. You can work uh, with Congress to pass laws. You can identify things that federal departments and agencies can do through executive action. Uh, And you can leverage the president's convening power to build coalitions, not only of government agencies, but of companies, research universities, philanthropists and foundations, nonprofit organizations in order to achieve a particular goal. So if there is something that you're excited about doing, you will have access to tools in order to uh, advance that agenda that you wouldn't have anywhere else. So it's giving them, you know, what some people call definite optimism, not just like general optimism of, oh, you know, I think things will get better of like, oh, there's something concrete that I can do to make things better. When people were skeptical or kind of reluctant to come work for you, what, what, what were their reasons? Well, I think that if your perception of the, of the government is based on reading the press, what do you read about? You read about scandal, you read about gridlock, right? And it's not like those things are incorrect, but it would be like if your perception of New York were based on only reading the crime pages. What, I mean, you wouldn't say, yes, all those, you know, those crimes do occur, but New York also has... Restaurants. You know, restaurants. (laughs) Parks. And, uh, you know, symphonies and, you know, amazing art museums. And so, you know, similarly, it is true that particularly when you have divided government, it's very difficult to pass legislation. And so there's a lot of things that we need to do that really require passing legislation And the fact that we're not able to do that is a bad thing. So I do not discount gridlock, uh, partisan gridlock as a a problem. But I have a different view that is based on even subject to those constraints, things that I've been able to accomplish that I think are important. Uh, And so I try to give that perspective as well. Yeah. So do you think people underappreciate how much the executive branch can just do autonomously? Yes. Yeah. Not only what it can do, but the president's ability to convene. Hmm. Explain that. Sure. So 
If the president invites you to a meeting, or even if someone who just works for the president like me, many people will show up. And there are several different types of meetings that you could have. So one would just be, hey, uh, we think that this issue X is important. And so we want to have a conversation about what are the best possible ideas to make progress on issue X. Um, so that would be a way of trying to understand the issue, understanding potential courses of action. But we might also have a meeting where the purpose is to serve as an artificial deadline. And we would use the time between now and when the event was going to occur to ask people what it is that they might be prepared to do. So for example, um, the president said, in the same way that if you win the Super Bowl or the NCAA, you get to come to the White House, the same thing should be true if you win a science fair or robotics competition. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to sort of increase the prestige and status of, of STEM education and get more young boys and girls excited about STEM. And so we would use that event not just for the president to interact with these kids who are doing these amazing you know, robotics competitions and, and, and science fair projects, but to mobilize the entire country to make specific commitments that would advance the ball. So the question that I would ask people is, if you were the president and you could call anyone and ask them to do something, who would you call and what would you ask them to do? And sometimes uh, there are organizations that are, that are not part of the government, but are, uh, you know, particularly if they work together, are really in a position to move the ball forward on, on a particular national issue. Yeah, so I guess I, I would have been skeptical as well that this, this power, at least with businesses, was very effective. Because you can imagine you call in the CEOs of various companies and they come and play nice and they're like, oh, yes, we're very interested in your priorities. Maybe because they're like scared of the government, uh, apart mm -hmm. from anything else. But then they go back and they do what they were going to do anyway because that because they're like sure. their responsibility is to their shareholders. And so they, yeah. they don't have so much discretion to, do, to, to decide things based on what the president cares about. Yeah, so I think that if you ask them to do something that is contrary to the interests of their shareholders, you're not going to have a lot of luck with that. But, for example, w one of the issues that we were dealing with was the imbalance between demand and supply for, for technical workers, particularly jobs that you could get that didn't require a four-year degree, but that you could get through some sort of accelerated training program. Mm -hmm. And the status quo was within a given region, the companies were just stealing their workers from someone else. Huh. Uh, and so we got them together and said, hey, what if as opposed to doing that, you like grew the pie and like tried to figure out what sort of relationships you you would need to have with various training providers so that there would be more workers with these skills as opposed to there's this limited pool and what you're doing is poaching someone else's workers. Like, yeah, that makes sense, right? So, you know, I think you're right in the sense that if we said, you know, we want you to take some action that is going to lower your stock price by 20%, they would have said no, <laughs> right? Bridge, yeah. <laughs> right? Or like, hey, if if you know if you want to do that, then like you're going to have to make that a law, right? So, you know, we don't make it optional about whether or not you get to ride on the right, drive on the right hand side of the road. That's just a law. And so there are some instances where if you want people to do th do things, you have to pass a law. There are other instances where you can get people uh, doing things by asking them. Uh, and number number one, and number two, putting it in the context of a broader social movement around a particular issue. 
And do you think people do that because you've brought to their attention something that might have been sensible for them to do anyway? You just made it more salient, or perhaps is it that they they do start to like buy into this vision and they're like, you know, actually this would be really cool and this is something. Yeah, like, this, this isn't too costly, so I'm happy for my business to be a part of. I it. think a part of it though is that you're putting it in a broader context. So a lot of times when we would talk to individuals, they would say, "Tom, I feel like I am trying to put out a forest fire with an eyedropper, right?" So. I feel like my individual contribution relative to the scope of the problem doesn't seem all that significant. But if you are getting together all of the stakeholders and we're defining a set of mutually reinforcing steps that different sectors can take, then the piece that I'm able to contribute feels a lot more meaningful. Um, so that's the thing that we can do. It's like because a lot of problems can't be solved by an individual or a sector. So if we can say, here's what government is going to do at the federal level, here's what state and local government is going to do, here's what foundations and nonprofits can do, here's what the private sector can do, here's what skilled volunteers can do, then everyone's role feels more meaningful. Think about a campaign. The fact that you can only knock on 100 doors, you're like, well, what, what impact can that have? But the reason it feels more meaningful is that you know, you know our, other people are doing their part as well. You motivate people by coordinating them, by getting them all together and saying, well, if everyone else will do this, then it's like useful for me to do my part. So, yes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 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 Uh, so taking a step back to, to the hiring thing, were there any particular criteria you looked for or in hires when you were interviewing people or looking at their... Looking at this? I was always more interested in people who had at least an initial theory of what they wanted to accomplish that they were intrinsically motivated by. So I put a lot of weight on intrinsic motivation uh, because generally I find if someone really wants to achieve something, they'll like figure out how to do it. Whereas, you know, if they're just responding to extrinsic motivation, they're less likely to like run through walls in, in order to achieve the goal. Interesting. So typically people came in with a project that they were already interested in rather than arriving on day one and you being, and being like, yeah. well, what do I do? Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so I guess that means there's like pretty regular changeover of projects as people come in and out. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And, but there were instances where I said, I want to achieve X and therefore I want to find out the best person uh, who can do that. So for example, I knew I wanted to do more in incentive prizes. Uh, and so after we'd passed legislation that gave every agency prize authority, I specifically looked for who can help lead a community of practice within the federal government so that more departments and agencies will actually start using this new authority. So there were instances where I saw a specific opportunity and then I mapped backwards from that, like who could, who could work on that? Is that, is that a common situation that uh, if you want to get hired into government, it's important to have like an area of passion or like a, a policy area that you really care about? I think that's helpful. Yeah. I think that there are other instances where someone is just looking for a utility yeah. infielder, right? So, you know, a lot of times someone will say, I want someone who is really smart, hardworking, uh, has uh, common sense, uh, good people skills, the ability to pick up a, a new area quickly, the ability to write effectively. So a, a set of skills that are useful in lots of different contexts. Mm -hmm. And then they'll just be able to, to catch whatever I throw at them. Uh, and they, they don't have to be an expert in a, in a particular area. Are there any other things you, you learned about hiring over, I guess, yeah, 16 years in, in the White House so far? I, you know, I didn't bat a thousand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah well, that, are there any indicators of people who, who didn't work out? Well, 
I guess some some of it is learning to trust your instincts. Yeah. So if there if you have a small voice in in your head saying, oh, no. I'm not sure about <laughs> this, you know, maybe your intuition is is trying to tell you something. That's one thing. I think the other thing is that unfortunately sometimes you can really never tell mm-hmm. until someone is in this environment the the extent to, to which they're going to succeed or or fail. So one of the things I benefited from is that a lot of these appointments were short-term in nature, and that if I really liked the person, I would work on getting it renewed. But the default was, you know, they would like time out after a year or something like that. So that limited some of the the downside associated with some of the decisions I I made that I wish I hadn't in in retrospect. So you often use this term uh, policy uh, entrepreneurs and policy entrepreneurship. Uh, Yes. Do you just want to explain why you think that's an an important concept and what that means? So I think a lot of times when people think about the government, maybe they have something in mind like uh, yes minister, uh, where the people in the government are trying to prevent anything from happening. And so, uh, did you ever did you ever watch that show? Oh, I've watched all of it. Yeah, I, oh, okay. I have to say, uh, looking at the UK at the moment, I think yes minister would be a blessing if the government worked right. well. <laughs> right, right, right. No, but like like Sir Humphrey is always trying to figure out how to yeah. maintain the status quo. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And I do think that there are people whose I mean my motivation for being in the government if you'd said oh your job is to just preside over the status quo i would have like left after three months right i mean that's not i wouldn't find that intellectually engaging or worthwhile Mm -hmm. so what, what i was always interested in was what were the new ideas that were bubbling up from the research community or you know entrepreneurs uh that i could get behind and and champion so it's so the policy entrepreneur, in the same way that an entrepreneur is identifying some unmet need in the marketplace and then trying to produce some product or service that addresses that unmet need through this process of uh, opportunity recognition, the policy entrepreneur is identifying an opportunity for a new or improved policy that uh, he or she thinks will advance the ball in, in some policy domain and then is trying to figure out what is the coalition that I would need to build in order to make that happen? And then actually going off and doing that. And so you might have a couple different types of policy entrepreneurs. So one is someone who is passionate about a particular issue. So there was a woman on my staff, Jennifer Erickson, who was really passionate about reducing the waiting list for an organ transplant uh, and kidneys in particular. So she was super passionate about that issue. And it would be like midnight or something like that. And I'd say, Jennifer, you got to go home and get some, get some sleep. Yeah. Uh, so she was like super fired up about working on that. So you have people like that. And then you have people like myself who are open to a pretty broad range of ideas. You know, so I view my value as I'm not that I've specialized in, in any one particular issue, but I'm curious about lots of different things, interested in lots of different things, and therefore uh, like being in a situation where I'm getting a continuous flow of high quality ideas and then picking some of them and trying to figure out how many of them I can get to to happen as opposed to saying, you know, by the time I retire, I want to have accomplished X. Uh, do you have any comments on the opposite of policy entrepreneurs, the, the, the Humphreys of the world who just want to kind of... <laughs> I mean, there's a role for that as well, people who like try to stop things being destroyed that are already working. Well, yeah. yeah. So I think that uh, it's not always the case that change is a good thing, yeah. right? And I think that it's important for there to be a productive relationship uh, between uh, political appointees like myself and civil servants, because the civil servants 
A, they're the ones who implement things. B, they have a lot of institutional memory. And so they can say, oh, we tried that before and here's what happened. They're also the ones who will be there when you leave in many instances. And so again, if you want a policy that persists, you want them to think that it's a genuinely good idea as opposed to something that we're doing uh, as long as you're watching them. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> what do you think people most misunderstand about policy entrepreneurship? I mean, one thing is that they might just not think of the policy world as being as dynamic as that. Yeah. But, but what, what, what do they misunderstand about the, about the process? Well, I think a number of things. One is thinking that when the policy is announced, the work is done. Uh, and so one of the things I discovered is that that was maybe like a third of the way through. And that just because the president had signed an executive order or a presidential memorandum or Congress had passed a law, that you had to devote equal, if not more, attention to implementation. Uh, and so I think people's view was like, well, if the president tells an agency to do something, like, of course they're going to do it. Mm. It's like, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, particularly as you are in the middle or towards the end of administration, an agency can rightly uh, say... I think we'll wait this out. Yeah, or just, hey, the president has signed so many executive orders at this point that uh, I can't possibly do all of these. And so therefore, in the absence of some guidance, I'm going to figure out which are the ones that I think are most doable. What, what actually happens there if, if, if the White House sends executive orders to agencies and they're like, well, we can't do all these things. We just don't have the resources to do everything we're being asked. Like, do, do they prioritize themselves? And is there any recourse when it's like, in a sense, they're not doing what they're told to do? Then what happens is that if the White House really cares, if the president really cares, then there'll be, uh, you know, really frank discussions about uh, some sort of down selection of like, which of these, you know, it, it's, it's, appropriate for an agency to say, you've given me all these things to do, I can't possibly do all of them. Yeah. And I think you see that particularly towards the end of an administration, where we were told, uh, look, this particular part of the federal government, uh, they're going to be focused on these three things. And uh, if you want them to do something else, too bad, right? Or you're going to have to take it up with the chief of staff, because there's been an agreement about what they're going to focus on. And that means the only way for you to have a priority is to say you're not going to do certain other things. Like if everything is a priority, nothing is a priority. So how common would it be for there'd be kind of an, there'd be a policy announced, uh, we go out to agencies and then just kind of doesn't really go anywhere because there's no one dedicated to it. And you have to keep following up, like calling every day. Basically, you, what you would see is a range of agency responses and some agencies taking it really seriously and doing something meaningful uh, and other agencies sort of checking the box and engaging in the sort of minimum level of compliance that they thought they could get away with. Is that maybe because they disagree about the policy sometimes? Or is it just they were overwhelmed and kind of... Could know, be that they were overwhelmed. Uh, you know, could be that they weren't never all that excited about the idea to begin with. Also, they might not have the capacity. Uh, so, for example, the president was more excited about STEM than his than his Department of Education was. Mm. So there was a large imbalance between the level of personal attention that he gave this issue and the extent to which the department was responsive to that. That means you kind of have to keep following up. To yeah, yeah. Keep reminding them. Yes. Yeah, are there any other things that yeah people misunderstand about policy entrepreneurship? Um, I think they believe that if you have divided government between the Congress and the executive branch, then nothing gets done. Yeah. 
Yeah, but actually, lots uh, of things going on. Lots of things just going on. The legislation. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the government is large, uh, and it has no shortage of legal authorities to do things. Mm. And there are areas where it has significant amounts of discretion, and it has the ability to convene coalitions of the willing and able in order to achieve a particular goal. Uh, so, so you've written this uh, great article called uh, Policy Entrepreneurship at, at the White House, which yes. is kind of lessons from, from, from your time mm-hmm. in government. Uh, and we'll, we'll stick up a link to that uh, so people can explore it in, in, in full if they're interested. Uh, yeah, but briefly, like, what, what are kind of one or two rules of thumb that you give up with uh, working kind of big bureaucratic organizations? One thing that I used to ask people is to imagine that you have a 15-minute meeting with the president in the Oval Office, and he says, Rob, um, if you give me a good idea for pick your cause, reducing existential risk, Mm. then I will call anyone on the planet. It can be a conference call, so there can be more than one person on the line. Mm. If it's someone inside the government, then I can direct them to do something because I'm their boss. And if it's someone outside the government, then I can challenge them to do something. So you not only have to tell me what is your idea, but in order to make your idea happen, who would I call and what would I ask them to do? So there are several reasons for this thought experiment. One is that... If you work for the president, you have the ability to send the president a decision memo and have him check the box that says yes. So over time, that gives you a sense of what psychologists call agency, a sense that many things that you see in the world around you are the result of human action or inaction as opposed to the laws of physics. So that's one thing. It's like a more expansive view of what do you think is potentially changeable. The second is is it's sort of a version of the hamming question, right? Um, Presumably, if you really did have a meeting with the president, you'd use it to describe an issue that you thought was really important as opposed to a second or or third tier issue. And the the third is that many complex problems cannot be solved by a single individual or organization. They require coalitions. Uh, And you can't build a coalition if you can't articulate, number one, who are the members of the coalition, And number two, what are the mutually reinforcing steps uh, that you would want them to take? So that's one thing that I talk about in the policy entrepreneurship. Then I also talk about something that people don't really appreciate, which is that policymakers do things with words. So what do I mean by that? Well, think about when the priest says, I now pronounce you man and wife. So he has changed the state of affairs by virtue of A, him being a priest and B, him saying, I now pronounce you man and wife. Uh, Similarly, the way that a policymaker both frames and makes a decision and implements that decision is through documents. So when the president does it, we call it an executive order or a presidential memorandum. When a regulatory agency does it, we call it a rule. Uh, When the Congress does it, we call it legislation. But in all instances, uh, it is a document that you are creating or editing. And so part of the policy process is that you are able to figure out what's the document or documents that you need to create or edit and who, who is allowed to take that something from being a Word document that is on your screen to something that has the, you know, some force in, in the world. And I, I would see this all the time. Something would go from like being a Word document on my computer to being a presidential executive order. And it it always seemed like this slightly, you know, magical transformation from (laughs) like a Word doc to something that is instructing 
relevant members of the cabinet to take some action. I guess this makes you more ambitious. Then you're like, well, what is the best thing? What's right. the best member exactly. that I can write? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It doesn't yeah. feel high stakes. Yeah. yeah. But it also, you, ha- you have to be able to articulate some coherent relationship between ends and means, right? So I would, a lot of times, someone would come visit me and they would say, my issue is important. And I'd say, great. Uh, let's say that I'm prepared to stipulate that. What is it that you want me to do? And then they would, they would look at me and they would say, <laughs> well, you should make this a priority. <laughs> and I'd say, all right, what would that look like, right? And so, you know, people were not able, they, could, they were able to tell you that their issue was important yeah. and that they thought that the president should devote more time and energy to it. But then when you not said like, what he should, like, she should do. like, all right, you know, what, what is it literally, like, let's say we got the president super interested in this issue, what would they do? They weren't able to articulate that part. Yeah, uh, I'm sympathetic to that because there's a lot of things that I think are very important, but I'm also not sure what, yeah. what should be done. I suppose maybe it makes sense for people to think more about that like once they've gotten people to care about it. Uh, but uh, at the same time, maybe it's hard to get people to care about something if you have no actual concrete steps that they can take. They're like, well, yes. they don't want to do. Yeah, yeah because that is, that's assuming that because what you're saying is I really thought about this issue a lot and I think it's really important, but I don't know what to do. Yeah. Right? That's a bad sign. (laughs) (laughs) So you should think about it. (laughs) Right? Yeah. 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 What what were some of the uh, aphorisms you had on the the whiteboard in the the White House? So one was the schedule is your friend. And what that means is that things can take a while to, uh, for things to happen in the government to get done. Uh, But if you were able to land an event in which the president was going to participate, then everyone had to meet your deadline. So for example, if the president said, you know, two weeks from now, I'm going to do an event on the brain initiative, then like you're allowed to go around and saying, you know, this needs to get done because it's for the president. So that's what the schedule is your friend means. The, there's an aphorism, uh, you know, talk to who owns the paper. Uh, and what, what that means is that generally, as I said, if, if a executive order or a speech is being prepared, it's on someone's computer. And so you want to find out who that person is. Uh, so if uh, you want to be able where's to, the file? Ed, right, if you want to be able to like edit that or change that, you need to talk to the person who is ultimately has that document on their computer while it's still, uh, there's still this sort of internal discussion about what it should say. So people would always say to me things like, Khalil, how did you get the president to say X in the State of the Union? And I said, well, I talked to the speechwriter. And like, it was probably like when Sherlock Holmes would explain how he'd figured something out and Watson was then disappointed. Yeah. Because once you say that, it seems like really prosaic. It's like, yeah. well, there was... There's this person, they write the speech. I talked to the person who who wrote it, who was responsible for writing it. And I told him to insert this line and he did it, right? But unless you've been in the policy process, you don't really understand. I suppose a lot of people aren't in a senior position in a lot of organizations. Uh, yeah, another one that stood out to me is uh, yeah, making uh, making it easy for people to help you is, uh, is almost always a good idea. Do you, yes. do you want to expand on that one? Yeah, so people have many more things that they're supposed to do than they have time to do. And so if, if what you do is you show up and say, I would like to give you another thing to do, generally people are not going to be super receptive to that. So if there was something that, for example, I wanted my boss to do, my view was I should not show up and say, 
I have a monkey that is on my back and I would like to transfer this monkey from my back to your back. What I would figure out is how could I make it as easy as possible uh, for him to help me? So for example, if I needed help getting a particular member of the cabinet on board to support an idea that I was enthusiastic about, then I would say, if I draft an email for you, will you look at it? And if you're comfortable with the substance and the content, will you send it to them? And he would generally say yes to that. So that, that's what I mean is like, if you want someone to help you, make it as easy as possible. But that also requires an understanding of, for an individual in the context of a particular organization, what's easy and what's hard, right? So you have to uh, acquire a lot of fine-grained institutional information about how different organizations work, uh, about uh, how decisions are made within that organization, and what's relatively straightforward for them to do and what's really difficult to do and what constraints they're operating under. Yeah, the OS, OSTP team has kind of been um, famous having a no, no credit uh, ethos. It's something that you've, you've talked about. Uh, mm-hmm. do, do, do you want to explain that? And was that something that disappeared because of the kind of people that were there or was it kind of an active effort? To, to I think make it was an active effort. And it, and it wasn't like, oh, we're allergic to ever getting credit for things. It was if there's a trade-off uh, between claiming credit and getting something done, always choose getting something done. So in other words, if someone else really cared about who got the credit, then we'd say, like, have at it. Donate it to them. (laughs) Right? So if it's like, uh, so, you know, there were situations in which, you know, particular agency really wanted to be the person who got to speak immediately before the president and introduce the president. Right? And so if that, if something symbolic like that is important to someone uh, and it increased these, the extent to which they're excited about the idea, then let them do that. Uh, did that extend to being being inside the team as well, that people didn't try to jockey too much for who was responsible yeah. for doing things? Yeah, no, absolutely. One of the members of my team, Doug Rand, said it was a team of dolphins, not sharks. Is being able to trade away the uh, the credit for doing something unusually important in politics compared to, compared to other areas? I think it's probably generally useful, but I, I think in, in politics, given that there are some people who care, uh, then uh, I think it's particularly useful to care less than they do. Did you ever worry that if OSTP isn't getting seen as taking credit for things, then that would be bad for the agency because then well, well, people wouldn't care about it? No, I think so. part of it depends on who your audience is, right? So I think that by being a White House staffer as opposed to someone who's going around and giving speeches, mm-hmm. I, have a, I had a lower public profile. And so fewer people knew what it was that I had accomplished. But there was definitely an audience of people who were like, oh, that's the guy who actually did it. (laughs) Right? So it's like, you're famous for 15 people. uh, But as long as they're the right 15 people, then... So, so it's kind of an apportionment of the credit where it's like, well, to the general public, it's like <laughs> right. the secretary is responsible, <laughs> right. but like the people in the office know that it's you. And so, yeah, if it, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, you've also said that it's very important to be able to get excited about uh, other people's ideas. Do you, do you want to explain that one? Yeah. So there are definitely ideas that I've come up with uh, personally, but uh, I think I have a higher than average ability to get excited about other people's ideas. And what that means is that the range of things that I can work on goes up considerably. So I was not sitting at my desk and saying, you know, gee, I think we should launch a big neuroscience initiative. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the fact that a group of scientists and engineers contacted me and told me about this idea and I said, wow, this seems like a big idea and was able to get excited about pushing it. 
for me, it doesn't. It, I didn't be, need to be the person to originate the idea. I just had to be someone who was in a position to help it in, in order for me to get intrinsically motivated to work on it. Yeah, from your experience in government, determine if people want to originate ideas rather than uh, follow them up. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, certainly in within academia, if you took the position that I did of going around and being excited about other people's ideas, that, that wouldn't be great for your career, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. People want to know what individual what contribution have you, intellectual contribution have you made to the field? Yeah. Uh, so someone being in my position of saying, well, I didn't come up with the idea for the brain initiative, but I played this important role in moving it from an idea to things happening in the world. Uh, that that's not something that you could really get away with in, in academia as a role. Uh, can you explain your, your magic laptop thought experiment? Yeah, so it's it's similar to the one uh, that I that I talked about before, which is you have the meeting with the president. So instead, the uh, thought experiment is that you have a magic laptop, and the power of the laptop is any press release that you write will come true. And what you have to do is to write a headline, which is a goal statement, several paragraphs that provide context, and paragraph-level descriptions of who is agreeing to do what in the form A does B, so C. So again, the idea is, you know, here we are in 2019. There's some more desirable future that we're working towards, and we have to articulate who would need to do what in order to to increase the chances of that desirable future uh, coming true. Yeah, and I guess the benefit of this is it forces you to be very concrete about like exactly what you want to happen yeah Whereas previously things are too abstract like, yeah it's, it's yeah. like oh it should be a priority but it's too vague to yeah to yeah. yeah it also gets you to think about what uh bucky fuller called the trim tab so what's the trim tab the trim tab is the thing that moves the rudder that moves the ocean liner so you can occasionally find instances in which there is an organization or an individual that is in a unique position to do a particular thing. So I mentioned that I served as one of the chairs of the Clinton Global Initiative. One year, Walmart announced that they were going to green their supply chain. And uh, Walmart has 180,000 suppliers or something like that. And they're all highly responsive when Walmart asks them to do something. So Walmart greening their supply chain had far more of an impact than had they written a check to an environmental NGO. So this, like... A does B so C really gets you to focus on the what what do you think in a particular problem or policy domain are the key leverage points and who would you need to act in order to take advantage of those leverage points. Yeah, when uh, thinking about what actions you wanted people to take, how often did you get to think about actors outside of the United States? Uh, it's a good question. I did a little bit of that, but not much. I was really much more domestically focused. Yeah, I guess in effective altruism, more often like very interesting international coordination things. Sure. It seems like often existential risks and long-term issues like require us to look even beyond like a national level. Yeah. Uh, do you have any thoughts on like how you can get more coordination at the international level or is that kind of being outside of, the, outside of your bailiwick? Well, one thing that I would observe is that individual personal relationships were still very important. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Dr. Holdren played a really important role in climate policy and one of the reasons that he was able to do that is that there were a number of very senior people that he had worked with in the Chinese government uh, that he had worked with when he was uh, a Harvard professor with appointments at the Kennedy School and other research institutions. And so those were relationships that had gone on for a long time. And there, there was the reservoir of uh, trust uh, and mutual understanding that he could draw on when he was talking with his 
counterparts. Whereas if these people are interacting with each other and they've never met before, yeah. uh, that's going to be far more difficult. Yeah. Do, do you think that the one-on-one person, personal relationships are more important at the international level, perhaps? Because we don't know, we, like the institutions and organizations and things going on in other countries are like less scrutable to us. So it's like, yes. well, what we can know is just this one person who we've met. Whereas, yeah. yeah. No, I think so. I mean, again, it doesn't like, if the countries have like diametrically opposing interests, yeah. right? Then the fact that like two people know each other. Yeah. But, you know, you think about the negotiations with Iran, mm. you know, the two people who are involved in those negotiations at the technical level yeah. were both MIT PhDs, right? Yeah. Uh, on both the US side, that was Ernie Moniz and his, his counterpart on the Iranian side. So, you know, that doesn't solve the game theoretic problems associated with the coordination. But this means but they hate one another potentially. It's like very, you know, I, I don't think you can overestimate the importance of people and, and having relationships that are based on sort of trust and, and mutual understanding and, and reciprocity. I mean, one of the reasons that I've been able to be effective is that there are a lot of people in the science and technology community that I've worked with on some specific project uh, and if that experience went well for the other person, when I call them up and saying, hey, let's work on X, right? I've got this sort of reservoir of, of goodwill that I'm drawing upon as opposed to like, who the hell is this guy? Yeah. Uh, so there are these sort of uh, increasing returns that can kind of kick in at a certain point of your career where people will say, oh, you know, Khalil is making this a priority. In the past when he's done that, things have happened and therefore I should take it seriously. It seems like this is kind of a, a big debate that people have is like how much of what happens in government or institutions is about the individual people and their personalities and their decisions and their relationships versus it's the institutional structure or it's uh, it's the incentives, it's the game theory, that kind of thing. I guess you want to say like, no, the, the people really do matter. And like, yeah, whether, people whether they matter. Get yeah, no, no. But I mean, I think the, unfortunately the answer to that is both, yeah. right? <laughs> but there are definitely times when I, I have felt under constrained, right? So I felt like, I decided to work on this. I could have done otherwise. There were no institutional reasons that were saying, oh, you should work on nanotechnology. I felt that I had autonomy uh, and and I like chose to work on it, not because of like, you know, there was no political economy. There was no interest group story of saying, Tom, you should work on nanotechnology. It was just like, I thought it was interesting and I decided to do it. And so, as I said, because I'd been the person who showed everyone the internet in 1993 they were like prepared to give me the benefit of the doubt as you know uh long-termism is kind of one of the, one of the distinctive um, things that you find pretty frequently in the in, in the effective atchison community how common is that kind of long-term style thinking or, or values in, in in the policy world or in, at, at the federal level i would say that there are pockets of it but i think a lot of policymakers are are focused on dealing with more immediate and shorter term issues so, for example, imagine that you are President Obama and you're coming in and the economy is in a free fall. Uh, you're going to focus on stopping the bleeding. If you're involved in foreign policy and defense, uh, a lot of your life is about dealing with immediate crises. And you might try to carve out some time to think about things that are important but not urgent, but it's very difficult and requires a lot of discipline. Are there any departments or agencies or people who <laughs> you sort of mentioned who are somewhat more sympathetic to this worldview where you can get, get things done? Yeah, so I think that uh, in the science and technology area, there is this notion that we're investing now and it's not going to pay off for 20 or 30 years. Uh, so I think 
science and technology by its nature tends to be more open uh, to uh, making long-term investments. But when I say long-term, I'm talking about 20 years, not, you know, let's think about the far future and yeah. <laughs> maybe there'll be like a trillion people that who are uh, haven't been born yet and we should think about their welfare. Yeah. So yeah, t- in practice, it seems like long-termists are often thinking on the kind of multi-decade level because it does like when you're thinking centuries, it gets a bit too hard to, to figure out what to do. Yeah. Uh, so I think policymakers also think, well, I have a difficult time figuring out whether my actions are going to influence things in the right direction over say several years, mm. you know, let alone something that may not happen for a hundred years. Yeah. So, so the level of epistemological modesty is going to go way up at that point. <laughs> yeah. With that kind of background, is, is there much that individuals can do to, to get people to think about the long-term consequences of policy or about technological change in, in government? Or is it... I think one of the things, there's a couple of things. One is that sometimes that there will be windows of opportunity so we call those policy windows. Uh, so let me give you a concrete example. So when uh, the Ebola crisis was going on, I had been briefed on a program that was going on at DARPA, um, which was, could we dramatically reduce the time to go from bug to drug? Uh, so we have this new emerging infectious disease. We don't have a vaccine for it. Telling people at that point, well, give us 10 years and we'll, we'll have something for you is not terribly satisfying. So the approach that DARPA was using was as follows. You've got someone, they've been exposed to a pathogen, they survived, their body produced uh, a set of antibodies that will provide immune protection. Let's identify those antibodies and then create a synthetic oligonucleotide construct that will directly encode for those antibodies. And so that the process of doing that would be a lot shorter than the traditional process of vaccine development. So I knew that we were going to ask for what what is called an emergency supplemental, which is we didn't budget for Ebola because we didn't know it was going to happen. Therefore, we need extra money to be able to contain it. And I was able to get some additional funding for this new approach added to that. And my primary motivation for it was maybe it'll help in Ebola, but almost certainly if it works, it will improve our ability to respond to future emerging infectious diseases or maybe even a world of engineered pathogens. So that's one thing you can do. Is try to find is, a present thing that hooks onto some broader, Yes, yeah. that's one thing. Second thing is that the long-term thing is actually aligned with the uh, mission of an agency. So I'll give you an example of this. So I started reading about the idea of potentially hazardous asteroids. And I found out that although you might think that NASA was all, all over this, they were actually making a pretty small investment. So I was uh, able to, to work with the leadership of NASA to get them to do more of this. So in that case, there was this long-term issue, very low uh, probability but high consequence event yeah. and there happened to be an agency that you could say hey you should be thinking about this as part of your mission and I was lucky that uh, Lori Garver who is the deputy administrator of NASA shared my interest in this because she thought it would be really cool if uh, you know we had actually made an investment so that if that ever did happen we were prepared as she put it being smarter than the dinosaurs that, that was her that was her <laughs> tagline a third thing that you can do is you may have a really long-term goal, but you are able to identify 
ways of making intermediate progress towards that goal. So one of the things I blogged about was a researcher who said, what we should do is to uh, have as a long-term goal bootstrapping a solar system civilization. And what did he mean by that is expanding the frontier of human activity beyond Earth and out into the solar system. And one of the things that is preventing us from doing that is that all of the energy and matter that we use in space comes from Earth. So it's very expensive. So what you'd like to be in a, in a situation is to be able to uh, do something called in-situ resource utilization, where more and more of the energy and uh, matter that we're using in space is coming from space. So if you think about being able to recapitulate the entire uh, terrestrial supply chain, but in space, that's going to take a long time, yeah. right? That's not going to happen overnight. But what you can say is, well, we should at least be able to get fuel in space, right? So you have this long-term view of, uh, would it be desirable to expand the frontiers of human activity out into space? And ultimately that will require that more and more of the things that we do leverage uh, energy and, and matter from space. Uh, and that that is a goal that will take a long time, but uh, that there's something that we can get started on. And we, so, for example, we can say, where is all the ice on the moon? So we can characterize that. And then we can say, well, how would we take that ice and turn it into fuel? And how would we use that to create uh, fuel depots, right? And so that's a long way from saying uh, all the things that we're going to uh, make in space are, you know, ultimately rely on materials in space so that we have self-replicating robotic factories, mm -hmm. but we can start to make incremental progress towards that goal. So one metaphor that I like for, about technology is that it's like you're walking in a building and you enter a room and in each of those rooms are three doors. Mm -hmm. And so you can't skip four rooms ahead. Mm -hmm. You can only advance one room at a time. And so that that is... You know, from a pragmatic point of view, even if you have this really long-term goal, which is, you know, humanity being a space-faring civilization, you have to say, what is the, like the next incremental step that we can take? So what's the door out of these three that we yeah, want to open? Yeah, exactly. How, how did you pitch the idea of like prioritizing asteroid defense? Like what's the motivation for other actors to like to offer money to this, given that I don't imagine the public is like, uh, you know, they're writing, like, call, calling the senator, it. right? Yeah. <laughs> they're not clamoring for it. Well, I mean, there was uh, research that had been done that said, hey, you know, even though this is like low probability, it would be really bad if it did happen, number one. Uh, and number two, we had a sense for that we'd only observed a small percentage of the asteroids that were out there that were potentially hazardous. And that also, even if we were able to, to locate them, we would know, have no idea about what to do about it. Yeah. Uh, if we did encounter one. We've made pretty big progress on that now, right? Yeah, we've made some progress on it, but there's a lot more that needs to be done, both on the characterization of the risk and the knowing what to do about it as well. So if there's other people out in in the executive branch now or just somewhere in the, in the US government who are interested in promoting policies that reduce existential risk like that one where you think about asteroids, do you have any advice for them on like how to pitch this to other people in government, like how to, how to frame it? Yeah, I mean, part of it was what we were talking about earlier, which is that just showing up and saying, hey, this is a problem, do something about that yeah. is not uh, is not terribly effective. So let's, let's talk about engineered pathogens. Mm. So... I think you could get most people to say, yeah, 
engineered pathogens is a problem and ultimately we're going to have to have the capability to prepare it. But a more effective approach might be to say, look, we know that like mother nature throws all these emerging infectious diseases that we're not prepared for. And so we should figure out what are all the things that we would need to do to get ready for that because we see that occurring with some level of regularity, you know, Ebola, Zika, MERS, you know, various different strains of avian flu. Uh, some of them could have increased transmissibility. So we know we have to get ready for that. And is there a way that we can get ready for that that would also have added benefits with respect to a scenario around engineered pathogens as, as well? So it sounds like you think that we might be pretty bottlenecked by our ability to actually come up with policy ideas that we think are useful. That if you can do that, then you can potentially find right people to talk to and there's enough well, There's enough sympathy. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's not the only thing that you need yeah. to do, right? So for example, if you come up with an idea and it's incredibly expensive uh, and it also requires some major trade-off with, with some other value that we care about. It's not like it's a walk in the park. Yeah. But I'm saying, I guess what I'm saying is that like that's the first thing to do, right? If you can't articulate some concrete thing that you want the U.S. government to do that is different from what it's currently doing, mm. then you're going to have a difficult time getting people's attention. Yeah. Do you have any uh, technologies uh, in mind that you've thought of over the last uh, 20 years that you think might help to reduce existential risk? Well, I, as I said, I think that there's a lot more that we could be doing on the biology side and in a couple of different uh, domains. One is dramatically reducing the time to go from an emerging infectious disease or an engineered pathogen and some sort of response. Uh, so uh, in policy circles, that's called reducing the time from bug to drug. And the other is moving away from the idea that we have to have a unique response for every uh, pathogen. Uh, so that is called moving away from the one bug, one drug paradigm. Broad spectrum uh, vaccine. Yeah, yeah, or like boosting your innate immune response to anything or dramatically improved capability on the surveillance side so that you know if something is, is emerging. I guess that, that sounds like the kind of thing that NIH, possibly DARPA, like other groups fund already that they consider as one of their responsibilities. So it's like possible to go and get funding for this. Yes. So I think that, uh, so for example, I talked about this idea of gene-encoded antibodies providing temporary immunoprophylaxis. So in those cases where we don't have a vaccine uh, and we have an engineered pathogen or, or something like that, just because you've done the research doesn't mean that you actually have a capability that's ready to go if that occurs. So I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done, not only in developing the technology, uh, but having knowing on sort of day one what you would do once the next Ebola occurs or if there is an accidental or uh, malicious use of, you know, an engineered pathogen or a pathogen that is released on purpose. In as much as you're worried about extinction risks or global catastrophes, do you get any benefit from the fact that kind of defense and security and like emergency management is such a big part of, of the federal government? Does it, there's like other people to collaborate with? Yeah, no, I mean, I think you get some of that but it's not always the case that just because something is, is really important uh, that someone is responsible for it. Mm. So I think that sometimes that there are situations where I think that governments in general, and probably human beings for that matter, have a difficult time of dealing with things that they perceive as being low probability, uh, high consequence. Uh, so an example is 
solar weather leading to EMP and like knocking out the grid. You know, there were some people in the administration that were working on this, but, you know, it was certainly not the case that the government was leaving no stone unturned with respect to its capacity to recover after something like that, in part because some of the things that you would do to prepare are just really expensive. So, And I guess they face competition from other things. They, they face competition like. with other resources, yeah. right? So, for example, if an EMP knocks out the electric grid and in order you have to have these really expensive and bulky transformers mm. and right now like the private sector has no incentive to do that then are you going to like force them to do that are you going to subsidize them to do that so you know sometimes if someone is focused on an issue they can come up with like very long list of of things that you know would be prudent to spend money on uh, but in an environment where you know that's perceived as zero sum, they, those may compete less well against other things. Yeah. So one way that you could help with that competition is to get the, the general public to kind of care and pay more attention to these issues, uh-huh. which you can try to do. You can try to like make them worried about about these risks, uh, freak people out even potentially, right. so that they'll then like call their senator, call their members of Congress, like hassle people about it. Uh, do you think it's possible to kind of mobilize people about these like yeah low probability, high impact? Uh, Problems And would it actually help at the end of the day, someone who's in the White House trying to move funding? We are struggling to deal with the high probability, high consequence. Things. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? So climate change, perhaps. I, I, you know, we're under massively underperforming on climate change. Yeah. Uh, so I think until we have that one under control, I'm not sure I would run around hmm. running, getting people concerned about EMP or something like that. Yeah, I guess one thing is that that one became very partisan in a way that asteroids is not. There's no like, yeah. there's no asteroid deniers. So, like, <laughs> so, so that kind of yeah. helps. Well, it seems like in general things that are like more straightforward engineering problems, uh, it's easier to get people on board for some reason. Or like they feel very concrete, like very we're going to build yeah. a thing, we're going to like we're going to find the asteroids, we're yeah. like build a missile to destroy it. Uh, <laughs> right. I guess like the more abstract something becomes, I guess like an AI is more. It's like it's like further away from just seeming like a straightforward engineering challenge that makes it harder to get people to really believe in it and really feel it and do something mm-hmm. about it. Do you have any idea on like where there are pressure points here where like the right people can be spoken to? Because ideally, I guess you would have this broad, like lots of people would be interested in the general public and would understand it. And then they'll talk, they'll like elect people based on this and then they'll put pressure on all the stuff. You'd have this whole system here, but uh, it's like very hard to build that potentially. So there's like anyway, any, any shortcuts you can get. I mean, I think that if you have, if you have a group of opinion makers who get organized and say, we think it's really important for the government to do X, uh, and here's how it could do X. So one thing that you see in policymaker circles is, you know, the equivalent of a blue ribbon commission. So for example, if a critical mass of AI researchers were all to say, you know, the government needs to double its level of investment in AI safety, here are a, a number of the research directions, here's how much it would cost. You know, you wouldn't need uh consensus it's not like you'd have to get every ai researcher to sign it but if you had like a critical mass who said this is really important and here's what the government can do then uh uh, certainly on a technical issue that again doesn't involve this sort of massive conflict with some other set of values and is not you know going to cost tens of billions of dollars Mm -hmm. then that's something where the opinions of experts and opinion makers coupled with an internal champion uh, can make a significant difference. 
Sounds like you might think that, that another angle is to convince people that it's affecting them now. That's if you say, oh, climate change is hurting people now. Oh, so people are trying sure. with like some, some success. But maybe you could try to say, that, you know, artificial intelligence. Well, I guess people do make this case that, you know, we're already seeing problems with like artificial intelligence that's doing things that we don't really intend and we don't well, understand how it works. No, we're seeing like algorithms. Yeah. We're seeing algorithmic right. uh, driven decision making, right? I, I mean, and it's sort of generally the case that sometimes when you use metrics uh, and you optimize for that metric, to the exclusion of other things, that leads to bad outcomes, yeah. right? So we've known about that for a long time. So for example, the National Health Service said, we want to reduce wait times. And so we're going to evaluate people on whether they're doing that. And that didn't lead to shorter wait times. It led to patients being driven around in ambulances longer. So they arrived at the right moment. Right? <laughs> yeah. So that ought to tell us that sort of maximizing any objective function and you know substituting that objective function for human judgment can be a bad thing did you agree that like potentially trying to connect it with like concrete things that yeah. are today is like definitely yeah. makes it easier to get people yeah. yeah yes as opposed to saying imagine one a one day you could have recursively self-improving systems mm. you know that that is going to seem more abstract to people yeah what, what do you think of the idea of kind of building a broad-based long-termist movement among the general public, among voters, among uh, at least among you know people who like read the New York Times? Well, what I don't know is how many people you could mobilize around the abstract principle of long-termism mm. as opposed to a concrete problem that we should pay more attention to from a long-term perspective. And I guess the other question is how long-term is long-term, right? So as I said, we're having a difficult time acting on things that are are deleterious now and are going to get worse over time. Uh, we're having a difficult time. Uh, we're not responding adequately to something like combating antibiotic resistant bacteria. Uh, we're probably not investing sufficiently in Alzheimer's. These are, you know, very high probability and high consequence. Right. Uh, we already failed it. And, and we're, it's not like we're doing nothing. There's a, a large gap between what we are doing and what we should be doing. So I guess I would say if you were going to organize a movement around it, I would focus on the high probability, high consequences and build up our sort of civilizational muscle for solving those problems. And then after we've got those done, then, you know, we can build up a muscle around the, you know, low probability, high consequence things. Yeah, what's a piece of advice that you might give to the people who are you know, part of this kind of uh, new subfield of AI policy? Well, I mean, I think we've talked about one of them, which is that if, again, if you ultimately want to impact uh, policy, I think that you can have some influence by just saying that this is important and that more attention should be paid. Uh, but you're going to have more influence if, number one, you're able to articulate something that you want the U.S. government or other governments to do that they're not currently doing, that your suggestions are based on a detailed understanding of the status quo, the capabilities of different institutions, and that there are people at different levels, the people who are making the decisions, the people who are informing the decisions, and the people who implement the decisions, who share at least you know some part of your normative and empirical beliefs. Yeah, let's let's talk quickly about the effective altruism community. Sure, I guess you've had like some exposure to for for a couple yeah. of years. So you haven't been like I guess haven't been super involved. So don't put too much pressure on sure. opinions that you don't have. But yeah, what, what are some of the mistakes that you think that we might be making today, and how might we steer steer away from them? Yeah, so let me tell you what I find attractive about it first. So one is that 
I think this idea of long-termism is really interesting. The idea that we should weight the far future more heavily than we do, number one. Number two, the, the altruism part, that is the sort of worrying about the welfare of, of other people, you know, maybe even other species. The rigor of, of trying to say not only how can we do good in the world, but what's the most, is it possible to think about the particularly impactful ways to do good in the world? So those are all things that I find attractive. I think where I may have a difference of not uh, I'm right and the EA community is wrong, but where I have like a difference of perspective is that I sometimes I, I think that the EA community has in mind the following thought experiment, which is you're sitting behind a desk uh, and someone is showing up at your desk and saying, what should I do with my life? Mm. And you're saying at the margin, uh, what should that person do? And so you would say, well, maybe you shouldn't work on climate uh, because there are other people who are working on climate. And so maybe if you work on this thing that we think is really neglected relative to its importance, mm. that would be the, the quote unquote best thing for you to do. And let's evaluate all the issues on uh, scale, neglectedness, and tractability. On, and let's measure all those things on a scale of one through 10. Mm. And let's tell people to work on the things that are 30 first. Mm. And I mean, it's not like that's a, like a crazy point of view, mm. but my sort of emotional and intellectual reaction mm. is more on the total level of effort that needs to go into it. Mm. So it's not that I would say, oh, you know, don't, don't work on climate change, uh, you know, you should work on this dimension of X risk. My view is we got to do a lot that the total amount that we're doing on climate is grossly inadequate relative to what we can and should be doing. The what we're doing to combat antibiotic resistant bacteria is grossly inadequate relative to what we should be doing. What we're doing on Alzheimer's is inadequate relative to what we should be doing. And to me, that seems the more salient and resonant perspective uh, as opposed to the thought experiment in which one person at a time is, is showing up and asking for career advice. So, but I'm not saying that my perspective is right and the, and the, and the EA perspective is wrong. It's just that I'm, I'm sort of far more interested in the like getting lots more people interested in solving hard and important problems. And, and so I'm, I'm interested in the, what is our current level of effort uh, relative to what I think is, is necessary to solve the problem? Not so much the perspective of, I have high level of confidence that this problem is a 30 and this other problem is a 27. Yeah. To me, that feels like false exactitude. So I think the EA community often has this, problem, has this issue that we, there's these problems that we're very concerned about, but then we get to the point of making concrete policy recommendations, and maybe we can come up with a bunch of ideas for this, but then we find it very hard to kind of predict exactly what effects that would have, and often we're worried that they would backfire in some way that we haven't thought of, so there's a bit of reticence there. Can, how can we become more mature about like yeah, improving our policy recommendations to the point where we actually feel confident enough to like say that some of them should happen? You, you might start off with the policies that you feel more confident with respect to a no regrets, right? So th this is a concept in climate policy. So there's very few situations in which it seems like a bad idea to reduce subsidies for the fossil fuel industry, mm. right? So you might say that we need more training of people who know both AI and policy, right? And so it seems difficult to imagine a scenario in which that would be a bad thing. So you might get your feet wet 
by uh, maybe identifying those things that seem like more in this kind of no regrets uh, policy. I guess also, should we also just be talking to way more people perhaps to like get a better understanding of... So I think that there's a lot of homework that you can do. So for example, you can have like a more fine-grained understanding of what's already happening, number one. Uh, Number two, what are the individuals and organizations that are involved in shaping policy, both inside and outside the government? Number three, what are their existing normative beliefs and uh, empirical views? And what are things that have been tried in other areas that might be potentially relevant? So I think that there is a lot of that sort of homework that could be done that would like help you generate more ideas. And the other thing is that, yeah, you can like talk to people who have been involved in the policy process and it can give you feedback uh, or can explain how particular institutions work. So for example, let's say that you decided that uh, a good next step would be that there should be more R&D that helps reduce existential risk. And maybe it's on the pandemic side or maybe it's on the AI safety side. Well, one thing that you'd want to know is like, which agencies would have the capability to do that? And how do those agencies make decisions? So for example, uh, DARPA has a budget of three and a half billion dollars. But one of the interesting things to know about DARPA is the P in DARPA uh, stands for projects. And what that means is that every four years, they stop working on something. So that means a quarter of their budget is available for new projects. Uh, every year. So unlike an agency like the National Science Foundation, where if you want to to get them to do something new, you kind of have to get them some more money because they're not going to say this year, we're no longer going to fund condensed matter physics. Instead, we're going to fund this other thing. They're going to fund physics, you know, in perpetuity. And so the way you influence DARPA is you get someone to go there who wants to pitch that program. So DARPA is a very program manager-centric uh, organization, and the the director doesn't necessarily choose what to work on next. The DARPA program manager uh, candidate arrives, and their job talk is based on an idea that they have, and they have to answer something called the Heilmeier Catechism, which are a set of questions that this DARPA director, previous DARPA director, came up with for evaluating whether or not you have a good idea for an R&D program. So if you want to influence DARPA, and let's say you want them to do more in the area of improving our response to engineered pathogens, then the way to do that is to say, well, who could we find who would be like world-class technically and has a great idea and could have convincing answers to the Heilmeier Catechism, who would be willing to go to Washington for four years, right? So if you didn't know anything about that agency or how it operated, then that wouldn't occur to you as a path to influence. But if you knew like exactly how it worked and its culture and its uh, procedures for decision-making and how its budget works, yeah. then that it becomes a little clearer about how you'd influence that as an organization. Yeah, so just well, you just have to kind of have more direct experience and connections and like actual knowledge about yeah. how things work rather than just a vague yeah. sense of this is like the government. The government. <laughs> right, right. So <laughs> like a lot of, of times <laughs> people talk about the government as if it's a, a rational, you know, unified yeah. rational actor that has a set of preferences that it's trying to maximize. Yeah. And, you know, occasionally if the the president is has a, like a something is really a uh, priority, then the White House can manage to coordinate the, you know, activities of multiple departments and, and agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still, you know, better understood 
uh, at the sort of more fine-grained institutional level. So what maybe should the AI community be doing to gain more influence with senior policymakers or you know, major philanthropists? And perhaps are there any things you think that we, that we should stop doing that are, that are maybe hindering us? So I would say that uh, I'm not sure how many people in the world will necessarily look at the, at the world through the EA prism. Uh, but I think that if you've decided that there are more things that we should be doing that uh, will respond to an EA priority, like reducing existential risk, then you can say, who are the people who care, already care about that issue, right? So for example, if you said that you were concerned about uh, pandemics or uh, engineered pathogens, that there are lots of people who are, are interested in that issue. And then you can say, is there some you know, value added that we can add to that conversation? First of all, you know, a certain amount of humility about like a bunch of smart people have thought about this. Like, yeah. are there ideas that they have that are not happening where, you know, we can help inform uh, a philanthropist who is taking an EA perspective to say, oh, there's a really important leverage point here. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I mentioned that I think people are really important. And so I think something that we don't do nearly enough of is to say, all right, here's an area that's really important where policy has a big impact. Uh, and where the quality of the people who are in those positions uh, has an impact as well. And so someone should be thinking about what are the key positions, who are strong candidates for those positions, and what sort of effort would increase the chances of them, the right person winding up in the right in the right position. That's an example of something that I think we're under-investing in relative to its expected return. Yeah. Are there any other ideas for, for, for how we could improve? Uh, for, I'm thinking like perhaps, you know, try to recruit different kinds of people who we're currently lacking or become knowledgeable about, about other problems that we, that we haven't focused on so far. Well, or, I would say that I would think about this inductively, right? So, um, for example, on the question of existential risk, I would say, could you find out whether there are particular types of people that the community of people who is working on pandemics lacks? So let me give you an example in a totally different field, not connected to EA, which is that after the healthcare.gov crisis, the administration made a full court press to recruit more people who had expertise in areas like software engineering and human-centered design. And so there was a growing awareness, hey, we need more people like this in the government because more and more services are going to be delivered digitally And if we don't have people who know about cybersecurity, software engineering, human-centered design, then the government is not going to be able to function in the 21st century. So the hard way recognized that we needed more people with those skills in the government. I think you could proactively go out uh, in these different issue areas and ask the people who are currently involved in that, both directly in policymaking roles, but in terms of trying to influence policy through think tanks, about whether they see particular types of people that we don't have either involved in developing options, making decisions, and implementing those decisions. So I think that's a difficult question to answer in the abstract, but you could constrain it and you could say, are are there options that we're not considering? Or uh, do we have a really limited capacity to execute on policy? Because there are certain types of people whose skills we don't have around the table involved in shaping, making, and implementing policy. 
How good a fit do you think the EA community's kind of culture is to actually running for elected office? Is that something that you think possibly <laughs> blue listeners should consider, should consider doing? I think some ideas of, of the EA community could be expressed in ways that would have broad resonance. So I think that there is certainly a, an overlap between the ideas of EA and, say, the ideas of evidence-based policy, uh, which is to say that uh, we should do more things that work and fewer things that don't work. Uh, and we should be engaged in continuous experimentation to uh, find things that work even better than the things that we know about today. So that's more unlike the maybe like the give well part of the EA community. I think there are other ideas uh, that the EA community has that are probably pretty far out of the mainstream of things that people worry about. I don't know of a lot of voters who are concerned about whether if there are 10 to the 80th hydrogen atoms and they're all suffering, that we should do something about that. So I think it sort of depends on where in the EA, in the sort of spectrum of consequentialist views that, that you have about you know, whether someone in the EA community would, would be a good fit for public office. Cool. Well, with the time that we have left, let's uh, just try to get as uh, concrete as we can with kind of uh, career advice for listeners who might be interested in, in going into a government or policy mm-hmm. career in one form or another. Uh, broad opening question is kind of trying to be as impartial as we can. We've kind of been making the case here for, for, for government careers. You see, how strongly should we be, re- be recommending policy careers relative to like other promising options like you know, science research itself or business entrepreneurship, like nonprofits, uh, earning to give? I guess I think I think at eighty thousand hours we have a sense that currently it's a bit underrated among our audience. But how, how do you kind of weigh up, given that there's like many different ways that one can make a difference? Yeah, no, I mean uh, I'm biased uh, because this is what I've spent a good part of my career yeah. doing, and it's worked out pretty uh, well for you. Uh, and it's worked out well, but I think there was a certain amount of luck there. But I think that this, if if you have the right person with the right skills and mindset in the right position, they can wind up having a large impact. So, for example, it's difficult for me to imagine unless I were Jeff Bezos uh, and I suddenly decided that nanoscale science and engineering was the most important thing in the world, being in a position where I could launch something that would last for 20 years and result in you know, a well over $20 billion investment in nanoscale science and engineering. Or to introduce a very different way for the government to solve a problem. Uh, which is that rather than like picking someone to solve the problem, saying this is the goal uh, and uh, we're going to provide some sort of financial incentive to whichever team is successful in achieving that goal. So introducing it, you know, just like a whole new way of solving problems into the government and, and having it be used, you know, over 800 times. So again, I think that this is a, a way of having an impact on the world that that can be uh, pretty significant. Yeah. What are the what are the best arguments against uh, going into government, or for us to prioritize government careers more? Well, I think a couple of things. One is that there are areas where you have good luck, where it's very difficult to get things done. Number one. Uh, number two, that particularly if it's something that is long term, you have changes in administration, uh, so someone can work really hard on something like, you know, energy and climate policy, only to see it be completely overturned by the next administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's You can't take the politics out of politics. So sometimes one party will be against something merely because another party is for it. So people are not saying, 
oh, what's your Bayesian prior on this? And what do you think the benefit to cost ratio is, right? So the types of things that EA uh, is interested in with respect to applying rigor and trying to figure out what the expected return of different actions mm. is, uh, believe it or not, is not the sole criteria that is used to make decisions within within the government. Yes. Speaking of the changing changing parties, thing, yes. uh, do, in practice, does someone kind of basically have to pick a party that they're going to be uh, aligned with and then accept that? Well, it depends you... what role they want to play, right? Yeah. So if you want to be a political appointee, then it's very difficult to be a political appointee uh, for different parties. It, it's not to say that it never happens. So think about someone like Bob Gates, who was Secretary of Defense in both Democratic and, and Republican administrations. But I would say that's the exception rather than the rule. But there are plenty of people who work at a think tank and can say, uh, you know, I will talk to anyone who's who I think is acting in good faith and is willing to listen to me. Or as I said, you have people who are civil servants who will serve under multiple administrations. Or you could have someone who is doing what we call the tour of duty, who say, I'm not going to work in government my whole life. I'm going to contribute a particular skill or expertise that I have. And uh, you know, within reason, I'm willing to serve under either party. So I don't think it's necessarily the case. But I think it is the case that if you're going to be a political appointee, that generally you're going to be affiliated with one party or another, not both. How do you feel about the, the tour of duty model versus the, you know, I'm, I'm going to have a government career uh, most of my life uh, model? I think that one of the reasons I'm excited about it is that I think that it can increase the number of people that would be willing to consider public service. So the way that DARPA works is that when you show up, you have a date on your badge that says when you're going to be leaving. And uh, there's a couple of benefits that flow from that. One is there's a lot more people who are technical who say, yes, at some point over the arc of my entire career, I would be willing to spend three to four years in government. There's a much uh, smaller universe of people who say, yes, sign me up for my entire 80,000 hours working in the federal government. Mm -hmm. So it just allows you to draw from a broader talent pool, the, the sort of tour of duty model. That's one thing. Second thing is if the position requires being at the very cutting edge of science and technology, you're more likely to get that if you're recruiting someone uh, as opposed to they come to government and then they stay there for 40 years. Yes. Third thing is if they only know that they're going to be there for three or four years they or even shorter, they have a greater sense of urgency and they're more willing to take risks. So one of the things that you hear about civil servants that I think there's a certain amount of validity to is if someone says like, I'm going to be here until I'm 65, uh, their appetite for doing something that is going to get them in trouble may be lower than someone who's like, oh, you know, like fire me, good, yeah. send me back to California. You know? <laughs> it's like sort of don't throw me in that briar patch. Yeah. Would you be able to kind of map out the space of different career tracks that, that people should have in mind? I guess there's like, there's, you know, federal government, there's the uh, executive branch, legislative branch, there's like political appointees, there's just, uh, you know, bureaucrats who are non-political, uh, there's like think tanks. How, how do you kind of uh, conceptualize that, that whole space? I think that one of the things that is more difficult about it is that there is not the same sort of uniformity that there is in other careers. Mm -hmm. For example, you say, I'm an undergraduate, graduate, postdoc, mm -hmm. assistant professor, associate professor, full professor, uh, name chair, you know, grand poobah. Uh, so, or like working your way up an organization from 
entry-level employee to the CEO, right? So I don't think that there's this, this level of uniformity. And I, I think it's much more the case that people are, again, particularly on the political side, are moving in and out of government. So they're, again, they're, they're not serving in government their entire career. They're coming into government, they're serving for a while, and then they're leaving and they're doing something else. And then they're coming back maybe at some point, later point in their career. How do you feel about the non-politically appointed roles in the in the U.S. federal civil service? Are they, are they a good place to start or to or to pass through? Yeah. So, for example, particularly in the area of science and technology policy, one way in which people get started is doing this AAAS mm. uh, fellowship in the executive branch, and then that gives you an opportunity to try it out. And then, if it's something that you're really enjoying, to keep on doing it, mm. and then. You know, if it, you decide it's not for you, then you can go off and do something else. So I, I think that's why these fellowships are, are good, because it's a way of sort of getting your feet wet uh, as, as opposed to saying, oh, I, you know, I know a priori that this is the thing for me to do. What do you think of kind of a local or state government as either, I guess, a terminal role or as a, as a like stepping stone to, to a federal role? Is that, is that a common path? In some cases, yeah, absolutely. So I think the trade-off is that you have a more immediate opportunity to see what impact you're having because you're closer to the ground. So there's a, like more, of a, there's a tighter and more immediate feedback loop between doing something uh, and then seeing whether it worked or not. Whereas at the federal government, you may be multiple steps removed from the, the policy to the impact of your policy on, on real people. If a listener wants to go into the US executive branch at some point in their career, kind of, and perhaps they're like in their 20s, maybe early 30s, like what are, what are kind of the first steps that they should think about taking now? Or is that just too broad a question? I think determine whether there's a particular issue that they're interested in, yeah. uh, to learn about that issue, to try to find out who are the people that are influential or understand that, um, to think about whether there's a relationship that they can have with a mentor uh, or a colleague that uh, does have connectivity with the executive branch or the Congress and can serve as an advocate for them. So for example, the way in which uh, Maya Shankar came to my attention, the woman who created the social and behavioral sciences team, Mm -hmm. she talked to someone and then that person said, oh, you should talk to Cass. And Cass said, oh, you should email Tom Khalil. He'd be interested in talking to you. Uh, So it's this like, you know, I think the combination of having an idea that you're at least interested in exploring and then finding out uh, more senior people who have worked in that area and are willing to talk to you. And then, for example, if you were starting out as a student and you were a research assistant for a professor who's really knowledgeable about that area, they might be able to have the sort of social capital to say, Rob is a really hard worker. You should definitely take a chance on him. Yeah. How much is kind of prestige and credentialing important in government? Is it more than other areas or...? I think it does have an influence in in part because uh, it's a shortcut. So as much as we would like to say, well, it shouldn't matter at all, mm-hmm. you know that if someone went to Yale Law School, then a very small number of people got accepted to Yale. Mm-hmm. And of those, only a tiny fraction are interested in careers in politics and policy. So you're thinking... Well, you know, they're probably pretty good if they went to Yale Law School. And it's a lot faster to evaluate than having to talk to them at great length, right? Yeah. 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 So I'm not saying this is a good thing. Uh, I think it would be better if we had other mechanisms. Uh, But I would say that, you know, realistically, people will will say, will make certain assumptions uh, about your uh, sort of raw level of intelligence 
uh, on whether or not you went to and successfully completed some highly selective institution or got some highly prestigious uh, fellowship. Now, that might help get you in the door, but then they're going to ask all these other questions about you as, as well. But it is a way of standing out. So, so it seems like it's quite important to have to, to find people who can kind of vouch for you and like yes. say, recommend that you should talk to someone else. That kind of, yes. Do you have any advice for people doing that? I guess it's like it's kind of networking, but it's like it's a bit more than that. It's about it's kind of proving yourself. To yeah. Them. It's for example, you know, what's something that you have when you're young? You have time and energy, yeah. right? And so there are many people in the world who have many more things that they would like to get done than they have time for. So the sort of trade that you can make with someone like that is to say. I will work really hard on a on a project that you have defined and sort of like the the quid pro quo is like if I really deliver the goods on that mm-hmm. you will say you will say things about me that you believe to be truthful mm-hmm. like you are a really hard worker mm-hmm. you are uh, a quick study mm-hmm. uh you have a high you know sort of general level of intelligence uh you're a good writer you know whatever it's sort of the attributes that may be difficult for someone to observe just by looking at your resume having someone uh, vouch for you is is important what kind of mistakes do you see people make when they're trying to build their build a career in a government one thing is i think that there's sometimes there are people who are really good at managing up but have a bad relationship with their peers and ultimately i think that catches up with you uh, because you will have a reputation for the person uh, for the type of person who is really good at managing up, uh, but other people dislike working with. So you can get some gains on that in the in the short term if you could get promoted rapidly if you're really good at managing up. But then some of those peers but, get promoted. But some they, of those peers mm-hmm. then will like like the next time you're up for a job, kind of roll their eyes. To they'll like head. they'll you know they'll ask around and they'll find out eh, you know that person you know, was good at kissing up, but they kicked down or they had really sharp elbows or something like that. Right. So, so is that how they're not getting, how they're not getting along with their peers? That they're just too competitive or like they're too not, competitive. not helpful enough? Yeah. It's like so clear, you know, what they're interested in is themselves ple- and their career. They're themselves and their career. So it's the Adam Grant, I don't know if you've read this book, Givers versus Takers, right? Yeah. So I think that if you are a taker, you know, there are instances in which that there are some short-term gains associated with that. But I think the sort of reputational risk associated with being a taker or just being like unpleasant to work with in many instances will will catch up with you in the, in the long run. Yeah. How much is a reputation for being likable important in DC? I think it's, I think it's very important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it is that this is a team sport. You know, getting anything done requires... Uh, developing lots of relationships with people that are based on, you know, trust, mutual understanding, reciprocity, and this, you know, not being an aversive personality. Mm. If people are like, you know, so-and-so is really difficult to work with, that that will get around. And people don't, you know, they would, if they have the choice, they would rather work with people who are like genuinely pleasant uh, to, to interact with. I think some people have the perception that DC or the policy world is like more conformist, more conservative, perhaps than some other areas that they might work in, like like academia or potentially entrepreneurship or business or Silicon Valley. Is is that kind of an accurate perception? I think there's plenty of room for for creativity, but I can definitely see how people would view it as you know, particularly if you're in the like sort of the middle ranks of a very large hierarchical organization. Mm. So yeah. 
I, I think that's that's not an unreasonable observation. Yeah, just like something you potentially have to be somewhat, somewhat comfortable with. Yeah. Are there any other, other mistakes that you see people make? I think one thing is people will sometimes underestimate how long it takes something to get done. So they get frustrated if it doesn't. Yeah, happen, yeah. like if, if they're, I think that this is particularly the case if someone comes in from the business world. Mm. Uh, and so they're used to like, hey, there's someone in charge. And like once they make a decision, then everyone is going to salute and we're going to like immediately go in that direction as opposed to this like, hey, our founding fathers created this political system with lots of veto points in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so and that has its benefits as well. It, it means, yes. Yeah. Yeah, but it, you know, like if you're trying to get something done urgently, uh, then the need to have lots of people agree uh, can be frustrating to someone who's like, "Well, why can't we just get everyone in a room and decide?" Okay, so you kind of have to be willing to play the long game a bit. Yeah, the other way in which I handled that was to have lots of projects going on. So if like one was getting stuck, then I could work on another project. How political is it? Obviously, DC is political in a sense. But how, poli- <laughs> how office politicsy is it? I mean, it depends on the organization. Uh, you know, some or- organizations have more of that kind of office politics associated with it. So, yeah, I, I don't know that there's a universal answer to that that I can give. Because in the White House, well, it seems like at least today, there's a lot of like jockeying for attention and influence, a lot of like infighting. Maybe that's a bit, a bit untypical what, what's going on right now. But yeah, do, do you often have to like find ways to route around people who are kind of trying to, trying to stop things that people are working on? Sure. Yeah. I mean, if something is important enough that you have to think about escalating it right so if you were like oh these people at this level can like fundamentally disagree but we think that this uh, is important enough so that it needs to go to a higher level uh and we need to repeat that so that is for example that's the way that the national security council is structured so you might have a conversation that starts off in something called an interagency working group uh and then if the issue is important enough then it would get booted up to the something called the deputies committee. And those would be the deputy national security advisor, the deputy secretary of state, the deputy secretary of defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if it's, in, if it's even more important, then it would go up to the principals. And so that would be like the secretary of defense, the secretary of state. And then if it's even more important than that, then the president is directly involved. And so that process makes sure that you don't get in a situation where nothing gets done because there's disagreement at the cabinet level. Mm. And so like you say, well, we can't make a decision because the secretary of state and secretary of defense have a different position on this. Mm. The national security advisor, if they're doing their job, you know, tries to resolve it at a lower level if that's possible. But if it's not, and if they believe the issue is important enough, they're like um, the president decides. And so Obama used to complain that the only issues that he saw were the really gnarly ones. The hardest one, yeah. Because if they were easier, they would have been resolved at a lower level. A lot of people, maybe including me, have this when you're talking about like interagency working groups and this committee and that committee and all these different positions. It, well, I guess it feels like somewhat opaque. And also, you just, I don't know, like, how, how, do you have to figure out like which of these things actually cause things to happen and which of them are just like places where issues go to die? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. And that's just like a, something that you like have yes. to learn through experience or like yes. by talking to the right people. Yes. Yeah. Just yeah. So uh, an issue that comes up quite a, a lot with who we talk to is um, that they're, like, they're interested in doing something in government, but obviously it's like, it's so large. We're talking about millions of positions here and maybe only a few hundred thousand of those, uh, you know, come up for, uh, are advertised each year. But how does one go about like a job search? You're actually trying to figure out like, how do you find the positions, like the, the, the really good ones that you want to apply for in like a sea of like just, just so many different roles that you could conceivably go for? 
talk to someone who has deep institutional knowledge of the particular domain that you're interested in. So for example, let's take the Office of Science and Technology Policy. When we entered, when the Obama administration began, there were, say, 40 people at OSTP. And by the time we left, we had significantly increased the number of people that were working at OSTP, so that was over 100. So the way in which the office was structured was that we had, it was headed up by this science advisor. There was a chief technology officer who had similar rank to the science advisor. There, there were a number of different divisions. So there was one group working on national security and international affairs, one group on working on energy and environment, one group working on science, and the group that I headed up, which was working on technology and innovation. And then I would have 20 people that reported to me, right? So if someone was interested in working on a particular issue, they'd want to know where are the parts of the government uh, that have a significant impact on that issue and how do they impact on that? So for example, there would be, let's say that you were interested in, in pathogens or you know, uh, improving our ability to respond to the next pandemic. There might be People are looking at that from a policy point of view. Uh, someone who is at the National Security Council, who has all of WMD as weapons of mass destruction, as something that they're responsible for. And then maybe they have you know one person each that is responsible for different types of WMDs. And then there might be you know a handful of people working on that at OSTP. And then uh, there are people working on that at different parts of HHS, uh, like the Centers for Disease Control or BARDA. So there's not a substitute for talking to someone who can give you a sense for the organizational landscape on a particular issue that you're interested in and explaining what their roles and responsibilities are and the types of things that you would be doing day to day if you were to work there either in sort of an implementation role or a policy setting role? And what are the types of backgrounds that people who have those roles, you know, traditionally have? Yeah, it seems like so much of the information you need to get, it has to come from talking to talking to people individually. I guess is that just common? I guess that's common in a lot of the world, but it seems like it's particularly common here. Well, I mean, like, how do you find out how to raise a Series A round if you're in the barrier? You like talk to other people who do that, right? So I don't, I mean... The other thing is that you can find out some information by reading things, right? It so only takes you so far. Yeah, it only takes you so far. But you, for example, if you wanted to find out how DARPA works, you can look at the professional background of all 130 program managers, uh, and you can look at like what they did before they became a DARPA program manager and what programs each of those DARPA uh, program managers is running and what the technical goals are. Uh, you can look at the you know, the equivalent of the re- request for proposals that tells you exactly the problem that they're trying to solve. Yeah. So it's not like these entities are totally opaque, uh, but that you would want a couple looking at publicly in- information and the relevant literature with talking uh, with, with people who have either in those roles or have had those roles in the past or are deeply knowledgeable about the institutional landscape. From some of your interviews, it sounded like you had to work pretty crazy hours at hours at times. I think one yeah. that stuck in my head was uh, you had this saying, was it Friday means there's only two days until Monday? Yes. <laughs> yeah. How much is, is the work fun? And I guess how much do you just have to love it to be able to handle that? Well, I found it to be over the long term uh, to be very rewarding. So what I found to be rewarding about it was the experience of either having an idea myself or more frequently 
having people inside or outside the government bring me an idea or a problem that I thought was important, and then engaging in all the activities that were necessary to manifest that idea. So to go from a conversation with an interdisciplinary group of uh, researchers to there being a brain initiative uh, that NIH and DARPA and NSF and IARPA are funding and the Congress making a decision to support the NIH component of it for 10 years, which is almost unheard of, or seeing a field like nanoscale science and engineering take off or recruiting, uh, you know, at any one time, uh, you know, 20 people uh, to the federal government and not seeing... Uh, what they've been able to accomplish while they were in the White House, but knowing that, you know, a lot of them are going to come back and engage in public service at, at some point in their in their career. So I found it very personally rewarding and also very intellectually engaging because of the range of issues that I got to work on. So I had some people who were working on going to Mars and other people who were working on undernutrition in developing countries. Um, so I personally liked the range of issues that I, I got a, an opportunity to work to work on and help advance. Yeah, if, if you're trying to build a build a career in your federal government, how important is it to to move to DC? Maybe even before you actually have a have a role in government, just so you can meet all these people and get recommended by them. I think it's it's probably useful, uh, but there were certainly people who who did it without that, right? But they, I think that they had even if they weren't in DC, they had a set of relationships. Uh, where someone, again, someone would say, oh, this is the person that you need to talk to if you're interested in this. Yeah. Do you have any advice for people who are just setting out and building a network in this area? Like, how, how do you first meet, like, initially you don't have very much to offer because you've got no one to kind of vouch for you and you don't necessarily have any experience. So I think like uh, for many listeners who are interested in this, they don't really have like much experience. They don't have many people who they know in DC or involved in government. Mm-hmm. How, like, how, how, do you get off the, how do you get off the ground floor? Well, I guess the question is, you may not have anyone who can vouch for you who's in DC, but the question is, can you have someone who can vouch for you who has some set of relationships with people in DC? Or uh, obviously, you know, what some people do is they start working on the Hill. Uh, so there's certainly jobs that you can get working on the Hill uh, straight out of college. They not, may not be particularly glamorous jobs, but it's a way for you to get your foot in the door. In the door. Uh, there may be positions that you could get at a, at a think tank uh, straight out of the college or after a master's degree. There are entry-level positions that you can get. So there's something called the, yeah, it's called the PMF program. Uh, that's something that gives you an opportunity to rotate between different uh, executive branch agencies that you can get uh, right out of uh, like a master's in, in public policy, for example. What are some possibly important things that people need to know or differences between the, the, the U.S. executive and uh, legislative branch? That, like, what kinds of people go into each one of them? Or maybe it's just that, is that the wrong way of thinking about it? Well, there's just different roles, right? So the president proposes a budget, but it's ultimately up to the Congress in terms of what they appropriate. So that's a very important role that they play. So if you want to do something that costs, uh, is going to require resources, then having the Congress on board in the appropriations process is very important. That's number one. Uh, number two is if there's something that you want to get done that requires a change in law, yeah. uh, obviously you cannot do that without the legislative branch. Uh, and then number three, they can engage in this oversight role, which is really important to say, we think that the executive branch is not doing a very good job on in this particular area, and we're going to hold hearings to try to get to the bottom of why they've been less successful. How much do you feel um, formal education taught you like useful things and how to get things done versus like learning by doing in the actual job? 
I think it was more learning by doing. I think there were probably some things that I learned that, that were valuable, but a, a lot of it was just... Uh, Direct experience. Yeah, yeah. experience. I guess in light of that, are there any like particular courses of study that you think are, are useful or universities that you would particularly recommend that people go to that might be underrated? Or perhaps it's just like the course of study is not the key question here. I think it depends whether you want to be a generalist or a specialist. So a lot of the generalists were people who had like a law degree from Yale. That's pretty good if you want to be a, a generalist. I had other people on my team, Robbie Barbero, who was responsible for the biotech portfolio. He had a PhD from MIT in bioengineering and had done several biotech startups. And then he applied through the AAAS fellowship and someone told me that he was doing this and that I should like scoop him up. Yeah. And so I did. <laughs> is, is there more demand for specialists or generalists? Do you have any like view on like, whether more people should do one or the other <laughs> or how to choose? <laughs> no. Or maybe they did. No. <laughs> Takes both or? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I've been a generalist and so I think that there are values to being a generalist. Uh, but me being a successful generalist depends on there being this uh, very broad ecosystem of specialists. Yeah, in our, in our conversation earlier, you talked about the Intergovernmental Personnel Act. Yes. Inter- yeah, could you explain how, how that works and how that can really like allow sure. move, move move upwards quite quickly? So the Intergovernmental Personnel Act is a very underappreciated law. What it allows is for a federal agency uh, to say... Uh, I want to move Rob uh, from from 80,000 hours to OSTP. So basically what the government can do, uh, someone in a government agency, is to move someone who is currently in a university, state and local government, or a nonprofit organization that has something about advising the government in its charter. And they uh, need to have been in that organization for 90 days. So... If you look at an organization like the National Science Foundation, their leadership are university faculty members who are doing this tour of duty through the National Science Foundation. Mm. So the person who runs the computer science division of NSF, which has a budget of a billion dollars, is not staffed by a NSF career employee. It is staffed by a leading computer science professor who is on loan from that university for some period of time, like four years. So it's a way in which the government can recruit someone who is in a nonprofit state and local government or academia and, and do so in a very easy and, and straightforward way. Yeah, you got most of your staff from this, is that right? I got a number of my staff from, yeah. from this, yeah. Yeah, so how can someone use this knowledge? Can they, can they approach people in government and be like, oh, you could hire me using this mechanism? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So someone who doesn't know about this might say, oh, you know, I would have to have a, you know, hire you through the civil service. Uh, And there would need to be this, you know, open search and like 150 people would apply and I might not be involved in the decision making. And so I might get like some random person that really doesn't have the necessary skills that I need. But if I know, oh, Rob is the guy, he has, you know, he has exactly the right background and uh, you're in a nonprofit uh, that uh, has something about, you know, advising the government in its charter, yeah. or you're in a university, then the government agency can just cover your salary and then you are detailed to the government for up to four years. How come this is more widely known? It seems like an amazing backdoor way of, yeah. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> okay. It's interesting. Yeah. 
you know, people think that there are like two types types of people. There's like the political people, and then there's the people who are going to be there for 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. And actually, it turns out that there are a set of flexible hiring authorities that are on the books that allow the government to bring in people in a more flexible way, as long as it is term limited. So you couldn't bring someone on and saying, you're, you're, you can work for the government forever. Yeah. But you could say, you can work for the government for up to four years. And for for a lot of people, that's great, right? Then they'll go do something else. Yeah. Are there any uh, any people you can't get from? You can't, can you get people just from any business? Or? You can't do an IPA if someone is in a for-profit company. Okay. Right, yeah. right. I see. So if someone said, I'm working at IBM, yeah. right? You wouldn't be able to do this. Yeah. Is, I guess, is that in part to avoid conflicts of interest? Or? Yeah. 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 Interesting. That makes sense. Are there any uh, jobs available at the moment that, that you're aware of that, that people could actually apply for? I guess, yeah, do, do, you, do you regularly hear about like positions that you go scouting for people who could potentially go, go work, in, work in the government? Yeah, or like Jason Matheny is, is hiring. Yeah, right. Uh, oh, the Center for Security and Emerging Technology yes. at, at Georgetown. Yeah. Yeah. yeah what, what do you think of that project? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And uh, I, I had an opportunity to work with Jason uh, when he was the director of IARPA, and I think very highly of him. So yeah. I, th- I think it'll. I'm, I'm really excited to see what he's going to be able to get done. Are there any red, red flags uh, for, that you think might show up for someone who's not suitable for, for, for work in government or policy? Yeah, I mean, someone who dislikes working with other people, someone who is uh, really impatient. So I think you can be impatient inside, but if you like... Communicate. You have to be able to control that. Um, so I think you have to be willing to be persistent and, and take the long view. But yeah, those those are some of the things. Are there any people who, who helped you out a lot to, to, to advance in your career? And were you able to like figure out who they were ahead of time and get conversations? Yeah, so, uh, so someone who was very helpful to me and so, someone who was the best man in my wedding. So he and I worked together on the 88 uh, Dukakis for President campaign. He then went down to uh, Little Rock and was the person who said, uh, well, why don't you come down to Little Rock and, and work on President Clinton's position papers on science and technology. His, his name was Gene Sperling. And uh, so when Bob Rubin asked Gene, who should I hire? He said, he said oh, you should hire Tom Khalil. So uh, both uh, Gene Sperling and, and Sylvia Matthews uh, were... Uh, very influential in me getting the job uh, working for uh, for Bob Rubin on the National Economic Council. And the reason that I wound up working for President Obama is because I'd worked for President Clinton. And yeah. so, you know, people knew some of the things that I had been able to, to get done when I worked for President Clinton. Then there was someone who was one of my early recruits uh, on the Office of Science and Technology Policy, uh, Kumar Garg. And uh, he and I have worked together since uh, 2009 and are continuing to work together. And I wouldn't have been able to, to accomplish half the things I'd done without sort of a deep and long-lasting friendship and, and partnership with Kumar. Yeah, having, having worked in the, in the White House for, for 16 years, you must have like some interesting or, or funny stories from, from your experience that are like different perhaps than, than what people expect. Can you share one of them? Sure. This is a story that happened in 1995 and 1996. So as I mentioned, Vice President Gore was really interested in this idea of the information superhighway. And one of his goals was, what if we could connect every classroom to the internet? And so I would tell people about the vice president's interest in this issue. And someone who I'd gotten to know 
uh, John Gage, who is at a company uh, by the name of Sun Microsystems, mm-hmm. said, oh, I've got this idea called Net Day. And the idea is, what if on a single day, tens of thousands of engineers uh, showed up in uh, schools all across California and uh, started the process of wiring uh, California classrooms to the internet. And I said, well, great. Uh, and he said, you know, I've got a web page of what this would look like if it actually happened. And so uh, he emailed it to me and I gave it to the vice president and the vice president thought it was a done deal. Um, so at this point, it was just in the fevered imagination of John Gage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the vice president has a weekly lunch with the president. And so he said, Mr. President, we have Sun, we have Apple, uh, we have HP, we have IBM, we have uh, Pacific Gas and Electric, and they have all agreed that they're going to wire <laughs> thousands of classrooms and schools all across California. And the president was like, great, <laughs> let's announce it. And so it turned out that they were going to be in, uh, in the Bay Area anyway. Mm-hmm. So they decided we're going to announce Net Day. So, <laughs> so I like called up John Gage and I said, they're going to come out and announce this. Uh, and so he and I spent the next week calling in every favor that we had to like get these CEOs to show up yeah. and announce that they were for <laughs> this. They like, well, they were a little sketchy on the details of what it was. And what John did was he developed a website, which was a clickable map of California that allowed you to zoom all the way down to the street level. All 12,000 public and private K through 12 schools had their own homepage you could indicate your level of expertise from I an experienced network engineer to I will bring coffee and donuts. All the schools were color-coded red, yellow, and green, depending on how many uh, volunteers had signed up. So we could look at the map and figure out like which communities were getting on board and which needed some positive reinforcement. So they announced uh, that not only were they you know, supporting it, but they were going to come back and personally participate in it. So by the time they did, we actually had tens of thousands of people who had volunteered. So it was this positive self-fulfilling prophecy uh, because the, uh, they said, oh, there's going to be a net day. In fact, there was a net day. <laughs> and tens of thousands of engineers showed up to wire the schools. And many parents showed up to wire the schools, but they discovered like the windows were broken and the bathrooms didn't work. So a lot of them got more engaged in the schools as a result Many states decided that they were going to do this, and the entire countries decided that they were going to have a net day as well. Uh, so what it was this experience, a couple things that I took away from it. One is that you could create this sort of positive, self-fulfilling prophecy, even though that was a very nerve-wracking yeah. period of time for me personally, because I'd committed the president and vice president uh, to do <laughs> to, something. To announce a thing. An, that, announce thing that didn't really yeah. exist yet. Yeah. Right? It was Sounds just, a little bit like an episode of me. <laughs> and that it was sort of applying massive parallelism mm. to this problem, right? So as opposed to saying, how are we going to wire 10,000 schools? Uh, uh, the question was, how could you get every community to take responsibility for one school? Um, so it was just very interesting of the experience that I had of going for something being com- a complete fantasy uh, to actually seeing it happen. See, folks, government can get things done. Just, yes. just in a sometimes peculiar manner. <laughs> yes, exactly. My guest it is being Tom Khalil. Thanks so much for having me on the, on the show, Tom. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. And I'm a big fan of the podcast. I hope you uh, enjoyed that pretty lengthy and detailed episode. 
Uh, in there, we were talking about the new uh, Georgetown Center for Security and Emerging Technology. Uh, and if you've made it this far into the episode, uh, you might be interested to know that they are hiring. Uh, they're looking for people to fill uh, a pretty wide range of roles, um, including a research fellow, an AI slash ML fellow, a staff researcher, a research analyst, a data scientist, and a senior software engineer. In the show notes, uh, we'll stick up a link to uh, their vacancies page, as well as our own uh, job board, which lists many other policy-related roles. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a week or two.